all of the great researchers and the Madame Curie and everybody, what did they, I mean, they tested their own stuff. Hoffman tested the acid. Shulgin tested the MDMA. I tested the insanity. <laughs> I said, if I'm already crazy, let's go for it, man. Let's go see it. Well, I got to tell you, once you stay up for nine days and you understand and experience a true delusional state and you're interacting with your hallucinations, you do realize there's a huge line between sane and insane. And we are way too liberal with our use of the word insane in our culture. Hmm. Most of what you what we call insane is just plain suffering. End of story. I am not wallowing in my own shit anymore like a lot of people do for the rest of their lives and become bitter. I'm turning every moment I have left into making, if my life's going to be crazy, then we're going to find out a way to measure it. <laughs> and we're going to find out a way to contribute it to the fucking collective good. Someone's going to make some sense out of this someday. Greetings, future fossils. Michael Garfield here, welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. One of this show's most popular guests, one of the most requested return guests, has been my old friend Charles Shaw, documentarian, filmmaker, activist, gonzo journalist. One of the more interesting people I know, and yet one of the more difficult and controversial people I know as well. Just hearing about what this guy has gone through is probably too much for a lot of people. And that's not to mention most people's firsthand experience of him as opposed to his work. As someone who has suffered from depression, trauma, and addictive behavior myself, although nowhere nearly on the level that Charles has, I have a great deal of sympathy for the guy and his historical bad attitude and just how difficult it can be to stay a kind and compassionate person when you are in constant pain and channeling that pain into a righteous quest for justice for the marginalized underclasses of our modern world. It's a fine line between advocating for those that need it most and dragging other people into despair with you over the systemic and ancient power inequalities that exist in our world. But over the last eight years that I've known Charles Shaw, I've seen him evolve from a bitter and angry recovering crack addict to a softer, humbler, and more loving man whom I regard as living proof of the power of psychedelics as an adjunct to the personal healing process. In the first part of this conversation, which I released as episode 59, Charles painted a portrait for us of our modern world in crisis and the growing epidemic of trauma and addiction that we desperately need to solve. But this episode takes a personal turn and examines Charles's own story of trauma, addiction, and recovery, as well as his most recent work exploring firsthand through his incredibly risky self-experimentation with sleep deprivation in order to understand the plight of America's homeless populations and the experiential reality of the people that we dismiss as merely insane. We also talk about how he lost and then rediscovered his passion for journalism and documentary film. We provide a critique of increasingly institutional festival culture, he tells some very powerful and vulnerable stories about his work with ayahuasca and a community of military veterans following the death of his sister, and how a person can acknowledge the fact that they are broken, 
but find truth and purpose in that brokenness and turn it into service for the common good. Even if you've never heard of Charles Shaw before today and can't appreciate his (laughs) lengthy process of redemption, this special double episode is about as real as this show ever gets and I think strikes to the heart of this program's wider explorations, namely, how can we understand the human condition in our age of rapid transformation, both what will remain the same and what will change, and how we'll have to change. I'm honored that I get to share his story with you. But first, I want to thank everybody who has been reviewing this show on iTunes those reviews are the easiest way that you can help grow the community of this audience and get these conversations into the ears and minds of other people we may never meet who will appreciate them. I'd also like to thank all 111 Patreon supporters as of today, Friday, April 6th. I'm leaving for Iceland tomorrow for a 10-day seminar with episode 60's guest Sean S. Bjorn Hargens looking at a multiple perspective approach to value and social impact so I had to record this intro a little early I'll be sure to add this week's new subscribers in next week's episode but I do want to give a shout out to Barbara Martins who nearly doubled her pledge this week thanks Barbara This week's Patreon exclusive is the Future Fossils Coloring Book, 15 pages of psychedelic fractal hand-illustrated digital art by yours truly, drawing on my 14 years of experience as a scientific illustrator and visionary artist. For those of you who don't have something for your hands to do while listening to this show, well, now you do. You can see some of these pages on my Instagram and YouTube if you're curious. And the coloring book will be available to patrons at any level of subscription until the end of this month. So for as little as $2, you can grab a copy for yourself. Also just want to note that my recent benefit concert for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is also up for free for Patreon supporters if you like that trippy medicine as music thing. And with that, I wish you all the very best. Enjoy this epic conversation with Charles Shaw. I want to talk a little bit about what I've been up to lately. Yeah, Yeah, let's, because I feel like that's... To understand this history of investigative journalism and culture war soldier stuff in this context, you know, of serving the downtrodden in this way. I think that's a really vital piece. Yeah. Well, I mean, for all the artists out there, cause I am an artist. I've earned my stripes. I've been in and out of the trenches, whatever the fuck you want to call it. So I have like, I have the right to say what I'm saying. And no, I was never a commercially successful artist, but that was never my intention. And I dealt in subject matter that is not commercially viable. And I'm proud of what I did. I did good work. I did a lot of it in a short period of time, and I attacked some really, really tough topics that nobody else I saw around me doing, right? So, like, I'm okay with it, but I'm I'm okay with it now. I wasn't for a long time. My career didn't give me what I wanted, and I was constantly seeking validation for it, and it fucking sucked because it drove me crazy. It turned me into this, like, angry, insecure little thing. 
I think I wrote I wrote something about this on Facebook where I just was not a nice person because I wasn't okay with myself. And that's the whole journey. And once you finally break through into something that makes you okay with yourself, and nobody can tell you what that is because it's different for every person, but once you find it and you finally break through and you find the ability to love and have some compassion for yourself, your whole world changes. Suddenly, you can handle adversity in a different way because you're not beating yourself up through the whole process. You're helping yourself through. It's totally different dynamic. Alien to me until recently – in the last year, I've really come to understand that more than ever before, and it's changed everything. I've had a really tough year, but I've managed to get myself through it because I never took it too seriously or, or too personally, and I never engaged in the same victim stories and poor me and like crisis behavior that is a hallmark of people with my kind of developmental trauma, right? <clears throat> so, having worked at a Ibogaine, two Ibogaine clinics since 2015 and um, having dealt with a lot of people who are suffering regularly uh, on a week-by-week basis, having lost, I think the final count at this point is 12 people since 2012, maybe 15, to either accidental death, overdose, or suicide. And I mean, this is, you know, my sister, my mentor, my collaborator, Chris Bava, my collaborator in Plastic People, his wife, his brother, like my my buddy Jake, my uh, the three veteran friends, including my good buddy Brett, who just died a couple months ago. I mean, this was this this is like this is your postdoctoral internship in life. And for me, what happened was, is I had to first get through this first hurdle, which was me. And the first thing I had to wake up to was I needed to redefine my entire relationship with my art, with my writing and my filmmaking, and redefine who I was and what I was doing. Because I was very clearly being shoved out of that and into working with other people that had gone through the similar things that I had gone through. But part of my nervous breakdown was, you know, having a huge like drug binge. And I think I, I blew like a $20,000 court settlement on cocaine and all of this stuff. I mean, it was bad. It was the, it was the ultimate fucking fear and loathing in my, in my mind type experience. I and, feel like um, we, uh, I feel like we ought to, we owe future fossils podcast listeners to do a, like a, a follow up of just your crazy stories. All of your, <laughs> like all your crazy stories. Cause you're just like dropping these. Cause it's true. Like you've got such a colorful life. You've had so many fascinating experiences that are not just about, you know, stabbing people and blowing money on cocaine and getting attacked by the Chicago police and all this stuff. Like it really at the same time. I thought I've been doing the right thing the whole time. You know, <laughs> like I think, I think I'm fighting the, the good fight, you know, but at some point you have to ask yourself why you keep ending up in certain situations. And you also have to realize the limits of power, man. Power is power for a reason. You want to go take that shit head on, man. You're going to get hurt. And a lot of young people don't realize that. And this whole thing that happened with Antifa and the, the fucking black block and this alt-right thing, man, it's scary because you got kids that have no historical connection to fascism or like the fact that this happened in the 70s, that roving gangs of fascists and anti-fascists used to beat each other up all the time. The LaRouche organization was famous for this shit. And it's happening again, but we don't teach that history. We don't hip these kids to what's up. So they're falling prey to the same tricks. And these groups are like swarming with cops and informants and agents that are directing their behavior. And it's just a total clusterfuck. 
But anyway, I digress. Let's get back to what we were talking about because I think this shit's more interesting. Okay, so so the one thing that, that came up and the one big challenge, my Sisyphean struggle, was coming to terms with mental illness and its role in my life and taking my sister and taking my mother and destroying my father and taking my brother and taking half my cousins and what it had done to me and um, – at some point, something shifted in me, and I recognized through the help of friends and people like you and people that know me and people that support my work who had seen this before I saw it, but they saw this natural progression of me going into this to try to use my experience to help people. And in working at a clinic, every day when you got to get up and be accountable to a bunch of people who are there suffering and trying to get through their lives, and they're there for a month or so, you get to know them really intimately. Like you wake up and go to sleep with them, and you have to be there. You got to be present for them. And this active service of being there for them is totally different than the normal experience of the trauma survivor or the addict, which is all very self serving, very isolated very self-indulgent and a lot of like societal victimhood that comes along with it because they label you as chronically ill and never able to get better which is uh like shackling you which is just so ridiculous from the perspective of holistic health what you need to do is empower people to get better right this is what entheogens try to do. But the thing is, you keep running up against the same problems and we can't treat people who have diagnosable mental illnesses because we don't, they don't know how to handle entheogens is the story. But the truth is, we don't know how entheogens operate within them and they have a very different experience and they can often be quite damaged by it. And I have a roommate who's a mental health counselor. He works at a residential facility that treats people with schizophrenia and bipolar illness and stuff. I almost had a job there as a counselor, but because of my criminal record as a drug offender, uh, I'm eliminated from ever being able to get licensed in this one field that I'm perfectly suited to work in. And I can't tell you what that does to someone's sense of hope. Mm. When you know you're perfect and and a group wants to hire you and everything, and you can't work for them. So I realized I only had a few choices and that I'd always kind of been an outlaw and I'd always done my own thing. So I might as well not stop now. And I realized that there's um, something that was missing. Like I'm in San Francisco. Let me just describe what San Francisco is right now. It's one of the most polarized cities in America between rich and poor. The median home price here is $1.2 million. It has gone from a kind of middle class city to a violently stratified city between a very small percentage of rich that have gentrified and taken over and a great deal of poor people, especially tons of interstate immigrants that have come from other parts of the country to live in the Bay Area because it's a more progressive environment and they have social services, people that come to live a gay life that come from repressive places, people that come to live a free, liberal, drug-using life. San Francisco practices a policy of harm reduction rather than enforcement. They do not go after drug users or drug dealers. They contain them within a certain part of the city called the Tenderloin. And if you've ever been here, the Tenderloin is, it, it's like, it's like the, the asylum in 12 monkeys, but bled out into the street. I mean, it is mayhem. It is mayhem. It is throngs of drug addicts crowds of young Mexican and Honduran drug dealers, all male, all young, with backpacks, all with the same product, that will swarm you wherever you go. You can get whatever you want, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The police don't interfere. They contain it. 
and the police only intervene in violence. The blacks have one area, the Mexicans have another area, they don't interfere with each other, and when they do, there's consequences. And the streets, every sidewalk is tents, encampments, temporary domiciles, the whole place is just one open-air asylum. And people are walking up and down the street screaming and hollering, and it is a huge epidemic, and it's happening all over. San Francisco is just a harbinger of things to come. In any city that has a progressive mentality and wants to deal with the fact that you can't stop people from using drugs or selling drugs, the frickin' economy here is propped up on drug money, man. There's more drug fronts in San Francisco than any place I've ever seen in my life. And if you took all that money out, this city would collapse. So they contain it, and they make sure the money keeps flowing, and everybody just leaves everybody alone, and it works, the one percenters and the Silicon Valley people, they hate it. They want to get rid of the homeless people. They want to get rid of it. But I am at this point like a street-level harm reductionist, you know, like mentored in the style of like Dimitri Mugianis and Brian Murphy and the people at New York Harm Reduction, my mentors, my brothers, and people that like are in the streets every day in Harlem and places like that, dealing with street addicts, dealing with the mentally ill. And I just became fascinated with it. And I, and I realized that um, – I don't know how I came about this. I think it's because I like speed and stimulants a lot. That's always been my, my crutch as, a, as an addict. It's a very it's American disease. It's a very American it's a very disease. very American disease. And it, it, let me tell you, it's in epidemic levels. Because like, I've been down in, in the tenderloin for four months now doing my own research and hanging out and meeting people and getting to like stay on the streets with some of these folks and just get to know what's up because I'm going to write something about it and all this and I'm hoping that this will serve the ultimate candidate of understanding the experience of mentally ill in America. So what I chose to do was a series, over a period of four months, I chose to do a series of experiments of temporary insanity. Now, the quickest and most sure way to get to temporary insanity or at least to get to delusional states where one is hallucinating and one can have a true experience of insanity or being insane, but also have enough of a reference point because they're not normally insane. If you go into it with a scientific mindset, you can bring back a lot of fucking data and understanding of what that's like. And the best way to do that is through sleep, sleep deprivation. So I blocked out weeks in each month and I stayed up. Uh, the longest I stayed up was nine days. Whoa. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I won't go into too much now, but the book is going to be all, and it's going to be a very detailed and elaborate discussion of what I saw and what I experienced and the nature of hallucinations and what's really going on when we're hallucinating. Where do the voices come from? Who are they? What did they say and why? I figured out a lot of this, at least in my case, at least in how it was operating in me. And then as I'm doing this, my, yeah, as I said, my roommate's a mental health counselor and this is San Francisco and it's very like permissive and everything. So, you know, and my other roommate's a chemist and a very like, you know, brilliant, like, you know, spectrum kind of kid that, um, <clears throat> is also psychonaut. He's very, you know, connected to the maps community. So we're all like brothers of other mothers, basically. We're all into the same shit. So this is a very open and inquisitive environment here. We do experiments. Like one of my roommates is always, you know, tinkering because he works in the cannabis industry. He works for a legal lab and everything, but he's, you know, he knows how to do everything. He, he could be a Sasha Shulgin. And he's working with Sasha's protege, Paul Daly. It's his employer. So, um, the other is, you know, the, the counselor. So we approached all this like very analytically and, um, I was telling them about this and like, okay, 
I was telling them about a breakthrough I had during my breakdown where I suddenly realized what was going on with these voices I was experiencing during a cocaine binge where I'd been up for five days. And like when you get like past day three, you start to hear and see things. And by day five, you're acting out full delusional fantasies that don't exist. It's fascinating. So a lot of what you're seeing on the street are meth addicts that haven't gone to sleep in a week and they are literally talking to their delusions and hallucinations. It's not the drug that's doing it. It's the fact that they haven't slept. And I have to mm. keep underscoring that point. The drugs aren't the problem. It's the lack of sleep. Just recently, a Stanford researcher put out a whole bunch of stuff, did a whole national tour, NPR, everything, talking about the dangers of sleep deprivation. This comes out while I'm doing my experience. My experiments. I don't realize that what I'm doing is knocking about a decade off of my life, which is what I just did over four months because uh, he's able to quantify it. So based on what I did, I knocked 10 years off of my life in order to acquire this knowledge. That's insane, okay? But I did it all very... Like, listen, you got to understand, it's me, man. I, I was lucky to get past 30. When I hit 40, I was like, what? Yeah, you're playing now I'm with house 50. money. I'm playing with house money, Joe. You know, so it's like, you know, one way or another, someone's going to write this shit off and it'll all be packaged and put away and that's it. So I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm on borrowed time as it is. I'm on my, you know, 10th, 11th life. And I did intense entheogenic work over the last three years, a lot of ayahuasca and a lot of 5-MeO-DMT. And I experienced death. Real death, <laughs> ego death and actual death and transition into the afterlife, long six hour death transitions. I'm talking like where it was like you let go of your life. You literally believe you're dying. You go through the forgiveness and letting go process, all of that shit. I went through that. When you go through that, you don't fear anything anymore because you've already crossed over. You've already died. Even if it's just a trick your mind's playing, it's real. It's real because you go through the experience emotionally. So it imprints one way or the other. And having died a few times and having crossed over and having realized death is just a transition. It really is. It can be scary if you resist. And that's where the whole idea of the ghost and the angry ghost comes from. When you cannot accept your own death. I get it now. I totally get it. Because if you don't let go and go with it, man, whoo, you will be haunted and suffer and you'll be caught in between worlds. Mm. And I know this sounds nuts to anybody who's scientifically minded, but I don't know how else to quantify what I experienced. Because then this then speaks to why this is in every tradition, in every freaking spiritual tradition, they talk about the same stuff. We know that this happens. We've experienced this before. I don't have to be Graham Hancock, adopt a British accent and pretend to be, you know, an anthropologist to convince you, you know, like it's, it's obvious. It's right there in front of us. And, but we don't know anything about mental illness. I'll tell you that much. We know little about death. We just know there's a commonality. Mental illness, we just turned those people into the woods when we were younger and they didn't last very long. But now they hang around and we don't put them in institutions anymore because that's too expensive. So now they're in the streets. Well, it's fucked up, man, and it's wrong. And, I mean, I can't tell you, like, I, there, I have an army of, like, transsexual friends now that are street prostitutes that, like, you know, are crack addicts or heroin addicts. And they, like, came to San Francisco to try to become women and live their lives and then fell in between the cracks of a hardcore party culture. And 
some of the they're some of the you know I want to call them victims because they're willing participants, but there's some of the consequences of you know a, a permissive containment policy and mm. so i did all of this lay research into the nature of sanity the nature of mental illness um i think that it has both made me crazier on some level and i only mean that in the sense that it has freed me from so much that i didn't even know i was holding myself back with and I, I just was so beholden to so many sacred cows of society and wanting to be say the right thing and come off the right way. And I just really don't care about that anymore. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, you got to let your freak flag fly if you really want to reach people and you really want to say something that's genuine, you know. And people are just so afraid to go there. Well, I wasn't. And I figured if I'm going to do this and if I'm still trying to work out my own addict complex and my own mental illness complex, then along the way, I'm also going to collect all this shit and bring it all back and sort it all out later. And I'm kind of in the opening stages of the sorting out thing, you know, about to get out of San Francisco, relocate down back by the clinic in Mexico and, you know, adopt a very different daily routine, start churning this material out. And I'm hoping that I'm able to shine just a little tiny light like I did with trauma or like I did with prison. Just shine one light as to what's going on in this world. But the new frontier, the great unknown is the is the human mind. And, and the thing we know the least about is insanity. Now, all of the great researchers and the Madame Curie and everybody, what did they, I mean, they tested their own stuff. Hoffman tested the acid. Shulgin tested the MDMA. I tested the insanity. <laughs> I said, I said, if I'm already crazy, let's go, let's go for it, man. Let's go see it. Well, I got to tell you, once you stay up for nine days and you understand and experience a true delusional state and you're interacting with your hallucinations, you do realize there's a huge line between sane and insane. And we are way too liberal with our use of the word insane in our culture. Mm. Most of what you what we call insane is just plain suffering. End of story. It's people that cannot make sense of their existence or their life. They're angry. There's no vehicle to like process or make sense of it. No relief. And they act out. And we say, God, you're fucking insane. Or, you know, it's as benign as like, I'm a funny guy, man. I love to walk around my house cracking jokes, writing material and talking to myself. It keeps me occupied when I'm not around other people. And, you know, it's a habit I got into my whole life. I used to edit every everything I wrote, I would edit out loud, you know, and I would get to the point where I had it to memory. So if it didn't sound right, because I'm a very rhythmic writer. Yeah. So I like to make sure yeah. my sentences have the right, you know, they have the, have to have the right cadence. They have to have the right beat, and they have to have the right syncopation, and all of it. It's all poetry on some level, you know? But there's people that I even neighbors around here, you know, where I'm, I'm like talking to myself for like an hour or some shit, and then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, it's the neighbor. He's fucking insane. And it's just that casual comment that somebody will make. No, you don't know that. You don't know what it means to say that. And let me introduce you to someone who actually is insane. And guess what? They're not going to be able to answer the question because they don't understand it in the first place. You know? Mm-hmm. And I've been gonzo. I was born gonzo. I'm going to die gonzo. I never used the label or wore it like a suit, but it is what I am. And, um, you know, this is the ultimate gonzo. Thompson would have liked this one. So anyway, the connecting point, Michael... In talking to my my other roommate, who's a counselor, 
and I'm describing the nature of the hallucinations. And they go through stages, by the way. The hallucinations change over time. They become more real, and eventually they break the fourth wall and become like they cross into the real world, which is that's when it becomes real scary because you don't know what's real and what's not. But until then, they're known as they're what's known as the shadow people, and the shadow people talk to you, but you can just barely hear them. And what they're largely saying to you are things that are in your own mind, and they start to take the voice of various aspects of your psyche that are being repressed in your shadow and you're not giving voice to. So they start to drive you crazy by percolating up as other voices. So all your paranoia and all your fear and all your shame and all your guilt is clustered together, and these voices start becoming personifications of them. But you never see them, and they're always just these shadowy figures that you think are moving outside your door or just beyond your window frame. But you never actually make contact. And it's a phenomenon across mental illness called the shadow people. Well, I went and hung out with those motherfuckers for a while. And that was something else. That was a trip. The Black Lodge. The Black Lodge. It gets complicated like that after six and seven days. Your delusions start to take on life. And they're fed by your environment around you. So largely the setting of your delusion will be whatever your environmental setting is. So me, it always involved people in my immediate surrounding, usually neighbors that had like malicious or malevolent intent. <laughs> and because there was a pre-existing story involving a neighbor and a lot of hostility between myself and one of my roommates, that was already implanted in my mind. That just became like bread for mold. It just grew on it. So that extrapolated into all of these different ways. Now, the whole time I'm realizing that I'm someone who's consciously going there. So I'm not like reacting in this, in the way that where I never like, I always knew where the line was to be drawn. Like if any voice tried to tell me to pick up a knife and start going hacking people or like eat my roommate's face, I was fully conscious that that was nuts. And that was inappropriate that I never like was a danger to myself or anyone else. But I have my own history with things like police brutality and prison and all of this stuff, Michael, right? So in my subconscious is already the germination of all this stuff. And now you, you keep me up for a week and a half. And what ends up happening is all that stuff starts to come out. And dramas, full intricate dramas with characters start to pop out from these repressed fears in your shadow. So there was a whole thing about me going back to prison for the rest of my life, because of these experiments, me getting caught and me trying to explain to myself, yes, of course, I was using drugs to stay up for days, but I wasn't, like, doing anything wrong. And and they're like, yeah, but guess what? You've got three felony convictions from Illinois, and you're in California, and we're a three-strike state, and this is now going to be your fourth conviction. You're going away for life. And this is a whole drama that plays out in my mind over two days. Mm. <laughs> And then at some point, you know, your body just shuts down and you start to run into what happens by day 11. If you're not dead, you aren't human. So I made it to day nine. By day 11, the heart stops. And I was in the early stages of, of major cardiac irregularity and uh, stroke, cerebral edema, I guess is what it's called. And I was with my one of my roommates. He was keeping an eye on me for a lot of this. Um but at one point, it became obvious because um, my body had gotten so tired that my diaphragm stopped working. So I couldn't breathe anymore. It could no longer draw in and let go of breath. It would draw in the breath and immediately it would snap back. It, it, had, no long, it had no exhale staying power. So I would inhale and it would. And I very quickly started to hyperventilate. If you've never hyperventilated, it feels like you're having a heart attack. And it feels like you have the bends. 
It feels like bubbles are moving through your veins. They're extremely painful and they move from one point and they eventually hit your heart. But what's happening is that you're hyperoxygenating your blood and you're pulling out all the carbon dioxide and that's what's happening. That's what you're feeling, but it feels just like a heart attack. And I was so weak that I couldn't hold a paper bag to my mouth, which is what you're supposed to do. Just put a paper bag, a flexible paper bag over your mouth, not plastic. Mm-hmm. It's got to be able to breathe a little bit and exchange a little bit of oxygen. But you got to hold it to your face and then eventually you breathe into it and your breathing eventually regulates. I was too tired. I couldn't hold the bag up. I eventually had to take duct tape and tape the bag to my mouth and lay there. But when you're that tired, if you lay in one position for too long, it starts to put too much of a burden on one part of your skeletal system or one part of your organs. So all of this shit that humans don't experience in real life because they go to sleep at night, I'm, I'm like experience. Like what, what is happening here? And it, let me tell you, man, it was, <laughs> it was fascinating. It was terrifying, but it was absolutely fascinating. And I like, you know, I got a whole like flow chart now of like what happens when, when we do this, you know, and a little bit of an idea of uh, how to communicate with people that are experiencing this now that are living in the, in the realm of the shadow people and never leave, mm. which is a horror I can't even imagine. And yet mm. we've got millions of people every day to do that. What did Star Trek say, man, to boldly go? Where no one has gone before. <laughs> this is this is. They didn't think it would all end up in, in convention. Yeah, you know. So at least the working title is "The Shadow People: Explorations of Temporary Madness" or "Temporary Explorations of Madness" or something. But I'm playing with the whole like one man's journey into the heart of temporary madness and all that stuff. But I can't come up with a subtitle yet. But I don't know how it's going to come out. I'm just going to kind of spit it out first, and then I don't know whether it's going to end up as like a proper book or an online thing or a serial. I have a feeling that people are going to be interested in it. I don't know of anything or anyone that's ever done this like this. I mean, there are some de facto accounts of people. Oh, by the way, I have to put a warning on this. Please, if you're listening at home, do not try to replicate this experience unless you have given up your own ghost and don't care about your own personal welfare and are just as soon okay with dying, okay? And that's me, and I don't expect anybody else to be there, and this is a unique position. I'm using it to the fullest advantage because I think that's what we're supposed to do as humans. I am not wallowing in my own shit anymore like a lot of people do for the rest of their lives and become bitter. I'm turning every moment I have left into making, if my life's going to be crazy, then we're going to find out a way to measure it, (laughs) and we're going to find out a way to contribute it to the fucking collective good. Someone's going to make some sense out of this someday. And I'm just saying, I'll just be a lab rat. It's cool. I got nothing else to lose. That being said, you have to be very, very careful. It is more advisable, like I did, to do a lot of it under the supervision of mental health professionals and doctors who can prescribe you medicines and things. You can go on the street and get meth and shit like that and do it, but it's not safe. And it's one thing to be on like a, you know, a pharmaceutically pure like form of speed for two weeks. It's another to be on street meth for two weeks. You never know what you're going to get. You take your life in your own hands. I do not advise this. So that's the disclaimer. Stay the fuck away from it if you can. I just have years of experience at the street level. So that's my world. That's where, I mean, you know, it's Burning Man was just a vacation for me, man. (laughs) You know, this is my world. This is my real world, you know, where the denizens roam. And, you know, a lot of them, man, 
I hate to say it, but there's a lot of them that you can make a strong argument that they should have been put down at birth. But there's quite a few of them. And that's a real fascist attitude, and I get it. But I'm also not a socialist. I'm Sicilian, but I'm also not under the delusion that, like, a government or an elite class can fix that. Because they're the problem. They're the reason, largely, why this underclass that they despise and think is hopeless can't get out of it. And it's a self-perpetuating Ouroboros of sorts. Mm -hmm. So, do you want to ask me anything else? (laughs) Well, I mean, I... Did you think we were going to go all the way there today michael i did actually i know you well enough we can't yeah. sink halfway with charles Shaw. tell the people how we know each other so uh, while and I'll, I'll go into this in the show notes in in more detail oh, okay. uh also and in the intro to the show and frame everything for but i think it's probably future me probably did not mention that uh when you and i met on this tour in 2010 and we were doing, we were filming your documentary. We were doing uh, a 30 date speaking and and music thing all over the United States and everywhere. For Evolver. Yes. For Evolver. Remember Evolver? It was for all the Evolver groups. So we were the first national tour of any reality sandwich talent through the Evolver groups. Just so you know, we were the first, even before Daniel and Ken or Johnny did anything on a national scale we were the first to do a a full continental tour yeah and for people who regularly listen to this podcast we had magenta seba on the show a few episodes ago and this was back when the evolver network that became you know later like a lot of that talent left and formed the bloom network but magenta was still working within that wheelhouse and and everywhere we went we were staying in most cases we were staying with friends of yours and everyone was like, you you volunteered to be in a car with Charles Shaw for seven months? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, you must, you must be a saint. And I was like, I, I mean, I can relate to well, mythic levels of self-inflicted violence. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> not because of Charles. And of course, you know, that was the tour that really that cemented for me the decision to relocate to Austin and all that. But I mean, yeah, I mean, we really, the framing of that show and, and I think, you know, the, the continuous theme in our relationship is examining the drug war, examining the prison system, examining all these ways that a sick society tries to hide or forget about its own illnesses and thus, you know, compounds the problem. But we we made a really explicit point in our discussions at every stop to look at the way that this is recapitulated in the miniature within each of us as individual human beings. And that, you know, this the role of the individual and the collective repressed shadow and how a lot of that repressed material is actually the the gateway through which we can encounter a a wider and more inclusive and therefore sort of, you know more practical in the sense that you're working with a full toolkit sense of self you know that a lot of a lot of what we we reject is the missing essential nutrient of our wholeness and that when wow. we stand when on we, the one when we, when we stand on side of it for so long that we actually develop these habits of refusing the thing that we actually require 
you know, which is part of that mm. whole like resistance to treatment, the resistance to medicine, the, the comfort that we have in keeping things the way that they are because healing is an ordeal. You know, it's an ordeal that challenges our, our identity. Yes. Yeah, bro. And I feel like that's yeah, the bro. conversation that we've been in this whole time. So, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, you know, the last time I saw you at the MAPS conference last year, I think was the first time that I'd ever seen you be just truly open heart, generous, kind, complimentary, not a, I mean, I've seen you go through that, but like this was the first time where I didn't see a dark edge on you at all. It, 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 it seemed like you'd gone through the tumbler and worn it off somewhat. And yeah, and, well, and, I mean, I want to speak to that because yeah. that's important to note, note. I mean, you, I mean, you said it, dude, like healing's an ordeal. And that's the thing is most people just check out too early. You know, they actually make a decision on some level to just rather live their lives in dysfunction and unhappiness and keep repeating patterns and cycles rather than go through it and go through the ordeal. And when you have been beat down by life, <laughs> when you've been beat down, when you've had people you love ripped from your arms, it changes you. You, unless you're not human and you're like a psychopath even sociopaths can be redeemed at some point, you know, even people that are on the worst end of the spectrum. And trust me, I've been called that a lot in life, but that, that these are by people that don't understand what a sociopath is, you know, and have never had to live with one. You live with a borderline, you understand what that is. This is a person without compassion. Like, try imagining being with a person without compassion, that no matter how much suffering you're going through, they don't give a shit. They actually get turned on by it. And so, but for people like me, I'm not like that, you know, and at some point, whatever was fueling my anger, my hyper ambition, my, you know, all of that stuff that made me aggressive and an alpha male in this previous iteration of me, oh man, those, those things suddenly became my greatest weaknesses. Those things became everything that was undoing my life around me. Every way that I went about my life started to fail me. Every way that I was used to doing things started just suddenly became a transparent hustle. I'd pulled the curtain back on myself, and I was like, oh, God, dude, you're full of shit. I mean, Michael, our tour was called Light and Shadow. And by the way, for anybody who would like to see, I took probably 10 albums worth of photographs of the two of us. And this is from eight years ago. Uh, they're on my Facebook page, so if you're friends with me, you can go check it in my photos. You'll see them. They're called Light and Shadow Tour number 1 through 10, I think, or 12. I'll, I'll link to that. And uh, so anyway, we called it Light and Shadow, and here I was going around talking about the shadow, but I didn't realize, man, I was just a tourist then. I had like <laughs> taken a vac I had taken a vacation to Shadow Land. I had like shown up and like rolled around like I see people do in San Francisco. In L.A. and Chicago every day, it's just fucking tourists, you know, and this, they, they, I've been to Chicago, I'm hardcore, you know, and I had, you know, taken a vacation in Shadowland, you know, I had uh, had a drug addiction, I had gone to prison, big fucking whoop, none of that was nearly as terrifying as going inside my own wounded complex and having to, like, come to grips with the fact that I was damaged goods 
I was one of those rare people that had gone through so much developmental trauma and addiction and all this shit that I was permanently fucked up on one level, whether you like it or whether I like it or not, it's the truth. I mean, I'm fucking dead sexy. I'm hilarious. I'm funny. Like, I'll entertain you all day long. Like, I'm not like a reject in life. I've had a great career. All of this, right? And of course, I say all this tongue in cheek. Um, I know who I am, you know? And I know that, you know, I have a lot to contribute, but not in the way that I was. Um, the hardest realization, and I challenge any one of you artists to ask yourself this question and answer it honestly. Why do you do what you do? Well, as a resident now, as a permanent resident of Shadowland and somebody that actually has built a house here um, and spent a lot of time here, I come to figure it out, you know. And when you hang out and you become a resident of Shadowland, you have to be for a while if you want to get your citizenship into Heal Land. <laughs> Healing Land requires a stay in Shadowland. That's where everybody says, fuck it, I'm out of here. But if you want to heal, you got to go through Shadowland first. That's where I was. And there you learn, okay, the only way through this shit is if I'm totally honest with myself. Because if I'm deluding myself, then that means everything around me is just predicated on a lie I'm telling myself. So at some point, every artist, every creative person has asked themselves, why am I doing what I'm, what I'm doing? What do I want here? And although I was a 25-year you know, writer and uh, you know, um, you know, seven, eight-odd years as a documentary filmmaker and I'd done all this work... My primary answer, my honest answer, was validation. And my secondary answer was because I love what I do. Mm. And God, Big Mama, whatever you want to call her, I at least use the her now because I'm, in my experience, and as far as I'm concerned, God is a lady, and I don't know how we allowed ourselves to be so deluded for so long, but suddenly patriarchy and uh, monotheism makes sense. Um, that being said... She's like, well, honey, you can't have one or the other. She's like, don't you get it? Like, you tried. Like, you're stubborn. You have pride and power and strength and will and brains. You, you made sure that you had some kind of career. You got, you got what you wanted, but it was what, it was never what you were meant to do. Not like this. You lost your love and your passion for what did it. You lost the feeling of what it was like to be 25 years old and completely broke. And living off of stale pastries that your roommate brings home from his coffee shop job and one gigantic tin of Folgers coffee and a bag of Bugler tobacco and some weed that I wouldn't even look at these days <laughs> and having and just live on that shit and sit in front of a word processor and write screenplay after screenplay, novel after novel, story after story and love every minute of what you're doing. I completely lost what that was like being an author and a filmmaker. And I spent more time walking around trying to get money and trying to figure out how to market and fucking synergize and like multi-platform and blah, blah, blah than I did sitting in a chair writing or sitting in a chair editing film, which is my favorite thing to do in the world besides, you know, you know. The other... Uh, so... The, the other thing parts, yeah. that, that involves our, our better halves. Um, so, um, 
So yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna lie about that either, man. I love women. I'm, I'm never gonna lie about that. I got like it wasn't obvious. I've been extremely lucky with women in my life. I've had incredible, many, 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 many incredible, wonderful lovers and partners. I was the dumbass in all of those relationships, um, but I was, you know. Certain wolves, I guess, are never meant to run with a pack. I don't know. So on that, I have, I do have a question for you here because I yes. feel like yeah. one of the things that came out on the tour, one of the tensions that we held in between light and shadow, as it were, was, and this was not just on stage. This was in the car when we were on like a twenty-two-hour jump from San Diego to Austin, etc. What a nightmare! Oh my god! The and of course, you uh, know, that's that's like being. With all due respect, Charles, that was, you know, that's like life of pie when he's like in the boat with the tiger, you know? Dude, it's like being tied up with Adolf Eichmann for like three days while he's going through his trial. I was an asshole. I get it. Like I was intolerable. But, but the point, the point is that the thing, the, the thing I found most intolerable was this disagreement that we had about what the sort of goal oh, of the conversation was. Is the conversation, is it, is it to properly identify the problem or is it to move past the criticism and critique by to a solution? Critique by creating. Yeah. Actually, like to, to actually move yes. into the solution. So I went ahead, you know, after the tour, you went and you did plastic people and you expanded the work into a more, you know, beyond just the prison system and into this larger social context. But it was all still very much like turning over the rocks and showing people what was underneath. And that's like a personal strategy. And my personal strategy was to look at the most horrible stuff as like, well, where can we find like the last episode of the podcast that I just put out was like, okay, so we're living through a mass extinction. Let's talk about previous mass extinctions (laughs) and how those turned out. Okay. How previous mass extinctions provided an opportunity for new solutions so it's like very much a the the pressure the burden requires an invention and so i want to touch in on that that tension and see where if anywhere where you feel like there is i mean on the one hand i guess you could call it hope on the other hand you could call it like a sort of just a cagey strategic opportunity yeah, to address man. some of these <laughs> systemic issues that we see here. You know, like obviously it's not merely a top down thing. It can't be just a bottom up thing. So we're looking at change that has to be made basically worldwide simultaneously on some level. And like, what the fuck are we even talking about yeah. here? Well, um, I want to wish you good luck with that. And uh, <laughs> I, I want to hope that you send me postcards along the way. I'd like to say that in all my years of world-changing efforts and wanting to save everything, um, I at least tried to entertain, you know, my wife Beyonce and I did put out a bunch of, you know, chart-topping albums, and uh, we did change the face of rhythm and blues music. Um, I mean, you know, and I say that just tongue-in-cheek because it's like, you know, if you look at people like, you know, power couples and shit like that, it's all part of an act of like, oh, we're all... Dude, they're the same people as me. They're just trying to validate themselves, but they can do it on this global scale. So what do I think? I'm not sure why I brought all that up except to say that like people be fronting all the time. And even Elon Musk cannot save the world. And frankly, I don't think he's a very palatable human being to begin with. But people love him and he's kind of a sacred cow and you can't really criticize him. 
But I say all these billionaires are shifty and you can't trust any of them. Uh, I went through my phase, man. I was in the streets. I was the protest guy. I was the organizer guy. I was the this guy. I was the that guy. I tried every angle. Then I went to Burning Man. I'm like, no, creativity can change the world. We're going to learn how to build alternative structures and systems. I learned all that shit. Still didn't change the world. Just got a lot more aggravated and found out how ultimately shallow the whole thing is. And then I just, you know, kind of said, okay, no, no, it's media. I got to make videos and write and make sure that, like, we really hammer home the problems. And nobody gives a shit about that either. You know, even if something is a hit, it's a fad. It's entertainment. It's the talked about documentary of the year. And then everyone forgets about it a year later. And what's that? What does that leave us? Well, I guess this old adage, this cliche of this, that you have to go out a long way sometimes just to cover a short distance. Mm. I think it really applies. And I think it applies to developmental retards like me, too. I'm just learning what it means to be a, a man right now. I'm just learning what it means to be a, a full-ass middle-aged adult, which I'm not. I dress, act, talk, and smoke, fuck, and fucking gad about like I'm 25. I, I mean, but it's this is what happens, you know. More than one person has called me a man-child at points in my life, but, you know, I feel like, what I've gained now and what I have had all along in a lot of ways is wisdom from experience. And I can be really mature and grounded and chill and everything when I need to be. And that's a difference. But God damn it, I just don't care anymore, Michael. <laughs> and I don't mean that in the sense of I'm ambivalent or I'm self-indulgent. I care. I don't want suffering. But as you go through suffering, as you experience trauma, as you heal, like you realize, oh, right. The stuff that sucks. Yeah, that's part of life, too. It's always going to suck. That's part of it all. It's always going to suck. There's always going to be a challenge. We are a race that is evolving in real time. We are evolving in real time. It will always be changing. We're just in a really weird part of our evolutionary. We're in a weird hourglass right now. We got constipation and we need to have an evolutionary poop. Because we are destroying everything right now. And someone, something's got to play itself out. But I'm okay with all of it. Look, I love Cyberpunk, man. Blade Runner is my favorite of all time. I am still trying to figure out my relationship with the new one. But the one thing that is the theme of it all is the total collapse of the ecosystems. Yep. And the way that that Villanueva, Denis Villanueva, portrayed them, which is absolutely genius. Oh, my God. It's so good. So good. And it's so bleak. And it's so awful. And yet, there they are. They're still there. They can't grow food in the ground anymore, so they grow it all synthetically, and they, you know, they can't have animals anymore. But where they get all their protein? Worms. And nobody bl- bats an eye. It's like, oh yeah, worms, whatever. Like humans adapt. It becomes but normal, yeah. It's become normal, but also, I mean, you know, adversity. Like, you know, most of our history, most of us have lived in some pretty shitty conditions, and you know, we're and on, on some levels, we're living pretty good. But it, it is on the backs of the most disadvantaged, and that's never going to change because that's power. That's the pyramid. That's why the pyramid was invented, and it's always going to be hanging around. And I don't want to sound like some ranty conspiratorialist, but there's a reason why this, a lot of this shit exists. Like, people figured this shit out a long time ago. What we have lost touch with is being okay with something that is simpler, being okay with a purpose that may not be glamorous. And accepting that things happen, man. When someone you love is ripped from you, you realize everything is impermanent. 
they're gone. They're never coming back. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't miss my baby sister, man. Uh, There will never be a moment that goes by that I don't talk about her loss. Even when people are going, Jesus, is he still fucking talking about his sister? Get over it. Even when people are saying that, you still aren't over it. You'll never be over it. When you know that's going on and you've been through this stuff and and if you can be a man, if you can be a real man and accept responsibility for your mistakes and be like, yep, I had it all and I fucked it all up. (laughs) And that's the first step because most people never get themselves there. Yeah, I had it. I had everything and I fucked it all up. This is quintessential anti-Horatio Alger going on here in real time, people. I am a classic American fuck up. And I can claim that if I want to, because I never became a best-selling author. I never became an award-winning filmmaker. I never became a famous public personality. You know, I had like Burning Man fame or like Internet fame or little smidgens of fame at. (laughs) Never real celebrity, never real anything. I was never anybody, really. And I can look at that and be like, okay, you failure. But I'm 48 years old, dude. (laughs) <laughs> and what I've done in 48 years, most people don't do in 480 years. And I started looking at all that, and I'm like, wow, that's extraordinary. And then one of the secrets, the light goes off, and you're like, yes. Age and wisdom become valuable commodities under certain circumstances. And then you're like, oh, whoa, hey, check that shit out. Whoa. <laughs> you mean what I went through, somebody will want to know about it someday? Yes, dumbass, just be patient. Okay, And so that was part of it. And then the other part is you just, man, you get tired. Like, you're a young buck, you know? I have been, I've been this hyper, overactive, super fucking overachiever my whole life. But at some point, my body just said, Coach, Coach, you got to take me out of the game. I need a breather, please. Please. Like, this guy won't stop. And I ran into the limits of my own mortality. And that's all part of accepting aging and growing older in our culture, which nobody will accept as they run around festivals dressed like they're 13 and they're like 60. You know, it's a pathology. We are afraid to get old and accept our fucking mortality, man. Well, yeah, I'm still a little afraid to get old. I watch watch the new Blade Runner looking at Harrison Ford going, that man is so bitter that he is old now. You can tell. You can just see it in everything. He's just like, why can't I be young Han Solo now? Why do I have to be old Han Solo? He's pissed. He did walk out of a plane crash, though, recently, as far as, you know, people taking good care of themselves. He's indestructible, dude. He busted his leg to make him the Force Awakens. Like, you know, and then, you know, the irony is that he was a carpenter. He had a lot to do with building the original sets on the original film because he was a, a Hollywood carpenter. He had gotten out of the acting game and was building, and they're like, hey, thanks for building that uh, Millennium Falcon for us. By the way, you want to do a screen test? That's, I think, how he found his way to the film. Yeah, I think it was American Graffiti. He had already he'd been a yeah. He had done American Graffiti, but he had walked away because he was pissed off because they wanted to turn him into a matinee idol. And Harrison Ford wanted to be gruff. He played a lot of like the uh, the screwball comedy though. Like Indiana Jones had a lot of screwball comedy in it. And as Her- as Han Solo evolved, he became like snarkier and snarkier in a more of a kind of a caricature way rather than like the authentic Solo who just didn't give a shit. I mean, the original Solo just slanked around like Jim Morrison, you know, in leather pants, if you remember. Like, I've always been Han Solo. 
I've never been Luke Skywalker. You've always been Luke Skywalker. But Han shot first. You want? I'm okay sure with did. that. I'm okay with that. And then and you know, I would, if we're going <laughs> <we're> to <laughs> extend this metaphor, you know, then then if I'm if I'm Luke, well, Luke is the guy that ended the you know the Jedi Order or tried to. There's like really, really, <coughs> yeah, really saw that institutional good. And this is my relationship to festival culture. I mean, we can get in here. We're already who the fuck knows how many episodes this is going to end up being. But yeah, that's that's, you know, I see that as my relationship to institutional festival culture is like Luke's like the Jedi order has to end. This is bullshit. You know, you guys, your your identification with the good is blinding you to your participation in an exploitative and malign system. <laughs> you know, my way of saying that was exactly a year ago. Yesterday, I posted on Facebook one of my definitions. That's one of my satire exercises. Is I post, you know, made-up definitions, and it was Padawanabi. The experience of thinking that one is a Jedi when one is not a Jedi because they don't exist, right? That was my attitude. I never deluded myself into thinking that I was a Jedi. I always was happy being Han Solo. Han Solo basically died doing what he loves, man. Being an outlaw, running around, stealing from people, hanging out with his big crossbow-wielding dog. Okay? That's how I want to go out. That is how I want to go out. That is... You know, fucking lightsaber me and toss me off a bridge, fine. But I know that I spent my last days lying, thieving, cheating, stealing, running around with my dog and shooting shit up. I mean, he just, he had it figured out, you know? You put the CPD in the, the stormtroopers, and then you got a pretty... <laughs> oh, man. Pretty People just don't model. understand. All the Chicagoans out there listening, you get it. And you don't really get it if you grew up in the suburbs and you haven't lived in the city, but... Still, you get it. Those motherfuckers are evil, man. San Francisco cops are awesome. I would walk up to San Francisco cops. We'd be pulling our money out of the same ATM while we're doing drug deals right there. Like, I'd be getting, like, shit on the street. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, hey, how you guys doing today? Oh, yeah, it's going good. Turn to the guy, hey, let me get a 320s and a, a two bag, you know? And the cops are like, okay, you guys, have a good one. Stay out of trouble. I'm thinking if this was Chicago, all of us would be on the ground. Teeth would be surrounding us. Like, blood would be pouring from our heads. Guns would be at the back of our neck. And there would be like 20 guys screaming, and you wouldn't be able to understand what any of the fucking one, one of them was saying. <laughs> That's Chicago. That's the perfect metaphor. I suppose when you go on with stories like this, people start to wonder, did, did he really ever come back from those insanity experiments? <laughs> is, it, is, it, is there any lingering? And anyway, for anyone who's curious, yes, that's the other disclaimer that comes along with methamphetamine use. So please be careful that it is uh, now a like established phenomenon of permanent irreversible psychosis if you take too much and stay up too long. So I was in that zone. I actually, I did have some residual shit that was weird. For a few days after each of the experiments, up to two weeks with one of them, I had to have clarification from my roommate on whether something was real or whether I was hearing something or whether it was in my head. Mm. So imagine just the people who aren't prepared for that, who aren't, who don't have a rudder or are, you know, don't have a fucking lifeline that they put in to, to let them know where to go. All of that just keeps driving the experiments of like, let's just push the envelope farther and, um, Michael, you have uh, matured into an extraordinary and formidable mind and presence. And um, what I dig about what you do here is that you really are pushing that envelope with everything. You push everyone to think. 
It's good, man. It's good stuff. Thanks, man. If you gave milk and cookies, it would be better because I like sugar. <laughs> I don't like milk much. It makes me fart, but cookies are awesome. So I'm curious about this this sense of cookies. Well, no, of your place in time. Like you know, you talk about being at this point not really like motivated to try and save the world anymore, but also not in despair. Uh that you can't. No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, embracing it and grateful for the fact that I have this mind. I was gifted with this incredible mind. And yes, it has plagued me and been the bane of my existence as well because it is like a child that needs to be occupied 24 hours a day by high-level stimuli. And if it doesn't have that in the form of productive work, it finds it. And it usually finds it through like, you know, simple primal pleasures because those are the easiest pathways to high-level stimuli. Right. All that being said, dude, when you accept who you are and you just accept it, you're just like, yes, okay, I am all of these things. This is my life. I've gotten to this point. I can sit here on this couch or wherever the fuck I am and I can complain about it and I can keep bitching about how I want to be this or I'm supposed to be this. But I'm looking at me, Charles, Charles 3.0 going like Charles 3.0 is exactly who he's supposed to be. I am a unique individual. No matter what anybody wants to say, no matter how much people may dislike me or dislike what I have to say, they can't argue with that. And I'm not saying I'm better than anyone. I'm unique. I serve a unique function. And right now, my function is to try to make the people that are the least understood in our culture more understood. I can do that. And I have sacrificed my life, my body, a family, a stability, everything in pursuit of this. Now across what will be my fifth platform, fifth group of despised subcultures. And I'm just going to keep going until we get to everything. I may put the brakes on when we get to pedophiles. I'm not sure I can really make an argument for that. But I do study the people that do because it's all about compassion. It is all about learning compassion. And I look at those people and I say they are the most compassionate. See, I've been in the joint, man. I'm permanently like programmed against pedophiles because they last literally a week. I, if you've never seen a man beat to death, trust me, you never want to see anything like that. And when you see someone beat to death because of a rumor that they were a pedophile, that strikes fear into you on a level that you can't really transmute to the average population, let alone the average festival kid who's like, wait, do you have moon rocks or like, is it something headier? You know? Mm-hmm. I don't mean to rag on the kids. I mean, come on. I'm just busting their balls like they need it. Like they grew up without having their balls busted enough. But, you know, it's true. My God, if they grew up in Chicago, they just uh, they just wouldn't get it. I say this all the time, but people just don't get it. And eventually maybe they'll go and see what I mean. Can we talk about They soul? don't call it this. Because I think that what you're, yeah, getting like, at, like, what you're getting at with your – that one of the stories that you haven't told. Wait, Michael. Yeah. Michael. Let's pause that for one second and then pick right up with it. I have to pee, but uh, okay. but I want to have energy. So just give me a second. Yeah, yeah. And it would be funny if you left that in too. Yeah, pee break. I'm gonna. I'll do that too. Oh wow! Man, I needed that. I got some sugar for my blood too. I have the hypoglycemias. So we have a kind nut and spice bar. Oh, here we go. I'm back. 
Yeah, let's talk about soul. Yeah, I want to talk about, well, not yeah, souls, but, but soul. Because one of the stories that I really appreciated that you told when we were on tour together is how when you were in prison, there's the white wing and the black wing, and that you had such a problem with the Nazis that you, you had them transfer you to the black wing. To the black wing. Yeah, and that it was the best, best best decision I ever made. Too. <laughs> and then this whole thing about okay, so I'm going to be a, an astrological dork here for a minute and just talk about today, January 9th. We are recording this during a conjunction of Pluto, Venus, and the Sun in Capricorn. What does that mean? What that means is that there is this overlap right now between the Sun, which is like the mythic hero. Venus, which is about like harmony and beauty and the desire to go for something beautiful. And then Pluto, which is, is, uh, you know, excretion, the repressed, the underworld, you know, piss shit, vomit, death, you know, the, <laughs> the, the volcanic eruption of subterranean sexuality and all of this stuff. So like we're, this is, this is like the perfect day to be talking to Charles Shaw and this, <laughs> And, 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 you know, this is happening. Yesterday was my, my birthday. This is happening like during this thing. So at any rate, you know, I'm thinking about this and I've been thinking about the trials in my own life uh, that I've been going through that will remain <clears throat> vague booked for the time being. I read this. My roommate gave me this book by Caroline Casey called Making the Gods Work for You, which is about the, right. the various planetary archetypes. And it talks about what happens when you're going through a Pluto transit, when you're going through the kind of thing that I'm going through in my life right now. And what they say is, is it basically, it's a time in your life when the energy of transformation gives you the choice to either let go and allow it to sweep you away and become something new or you can hold on for dear life and have your ass handed to you because it's going to happen anyway. <laughs> so true. Man. So, you know, I feel like in hearing your equanimity and this peace that I've, that I've seen grow in you over the last seven or eight years, you know, accepting the world as it is in a way that you didn't used to. I mean, that to me is like when I, when I think of people going through the tumbler and having all of their, the rock may be inherently rough, you know, but you can still get the edges off. You can still polish it. And that I feel like there's something about us, you know, the turbulence of this time in, in a more general way, putting us all through the motions like this. And that, you know, like at the very beginning of this conversation, when you talked about the difference between the generation that grew up in the depression versus the generation that grew up after World War II and in this like unimaginable, bizarre affluence. And the way that, you know, I feel in my own life, a greater resonance or kinship to my grandparents in this respect, because they have no offense to my parents, whom I love, but my grandparents lived through greater hardship. So I'm just, I would love to hear you speak to soul and the role of the and cultivation the of, of soul cultivation. in this thing that we're going through right now. I didn't know what I believed about the concept of a soul until 2015 when I was going through this nervous breakdown and I was talking with my ex 
girlfriend and my friend and collaborator at the time, uh, Andrew Jones. And Andrew said something to me because I had written this like this is like how my brain operates and this is how full of shit Charles used to be. But I was dealing with the fact that I was like suicidally depressed and I had been isolated and like I had been on a six month cocaine binge and I like had lost touch with everyone and everything. Um, processing my sister's suicide, trying to cut together at home in the dark while I'm at concurrently at the same time processing all of these suicides and deaths. No support, you know running out of money, every stress you can imagine, living in a concrete box <laughs> in Los Angeles that was not set up for human habitation in an old machine shop. And like, I mean, yeah, living a true gritty urban fucking artist life for sure. But man, when you're 45 and you're doing it, you're fucking over it. Like 25, great. 35, okay, getting a little nostalgic. 45, <laughs> dude, time to get an apartment. Okay, you know. And all this shit's going through my head. And um, so anyway, like, none of this really – okay, so getting back to Andrew, right, right. Pardon my uh, lapse there. <clears throat> Thinking about the concrete box always brings up a lot, and, and you'll know why in a second. But um, So I'm doing – I'm playing all these mental games with myself, and I sit down, and I just – you know, because the old pretentious stupid me would do this shit. I wrote this thing called, like, an open letter to, you know, something on the nature of the middle age crisis or some shit like that. And basically, I wrote this very long, very unnecessary essay, and the substance of it was, look, I am surrounded by suicide. Everyone I love or care about is killing themselves or dying. I don't know what to do with all of this. All I am thinking about right now is following them. Hmm. But on, I can't. But there's, I have this overwhelming will to live that is not allowing me to check out. Trust me, I've tried enough. Four times in my life, the most recent being in December of 2015, I'm not very good at killing myself. I should probably stop, right? This is a like very blunt realization that started hitting me. And, um, you know, it's hard because when you are unsuccessful at su multiple suicide attempts, you just look like an attention seeker. And it's almost impossible to explain to people the pain that you're going through where you literally are forced into a place where you're like, look – the only way that I can see relief here is to kill myself because I cannot conceive of continuing to live like this. But some of us just have this indomitable will to live. And Andrew says to me in response to this letter and then me seeing him at the time, something along the lines of don't. And also my very dear friend and sister, uh, Maria Chavez, she said almost the exact same thing. Andrew says, don't consider the option or the alternative. If you make that choice, you will be lost in the void. Mm. And Maria says to me something along the lines of, you don't want to become an angry ghost. Yep. Now, I guess, you know, Gabor Mate, who's, you know, someone I've collaborated with on my last film and got to know a little bit and made a real valiant attempt to hold me accountable when I was having my fucking nervous breakdown. Let me tell you, the man went the extra mile and said a lot of things I didn't want to hear. But um, 
His concept of the angry ghost, of course, was the ever gnawing maw of addiction that's never satiated. You know, it's just always has to consume and it's always this angry haunting that addiction is. But but really, the angry ghost, the, you know, the haunting spirit. Why throughout history do we have this story, this cultural narrative of the ghost? And what is the backstory in almost all of these is somebody who died who didn't want to die and was torn from something or someone that they loved. And they'd resisted. They wouldn't cross over and they're stuck. Well, I mean, that's really fascinating story and all. Um, and, you know, I'm not like, you know, I'm pretty scientifically literate. I was planning on being a doctor at one point. So I am aware that there is all of this theory around the fact that there's a tryptamine dump uh, from the pineal or some related region of the brain that is theorized to happen at death, which is theorized to be part of the crossover or the tunnel of light or the near-death experience. Okay, so I'm aware of all this shit, you know. Mm. I still don't know what I believe about God until I still don't know what I believe about another higher form of consciousness until the first time I take DMT. I don't realize that there's a God until I start working with ayahuasca. Don't realize it's feminine spirit. Quickly realize it's feminine spirit, but like still don't really understand the whole, like, how does this all work? What's real? What's not? You know, cause I got all these hippies around me and they're like, death is just a transition. We're just energy. Nothing matters. Woo. And you know, they all sound like GPs. Yeah. But what is that? Also, yeah, that's- <laughs> yeah. Like, what do they, what do you mean though? Like, you're just parroting things that other people have told you. Like, what does that mean? Because I'm one of those guys that actually asked that question. What the? F- fuck does it mean and i have to answer it and for me it was like i don't i'm gonzo i I have to have some tangible experience of it to understand it and interpret it through the engine the dark recesses of what is my brain you know so i told you i had these deaths with 5meo and ayahuasca and one of them was the first night in peru with a group of uh, nine veterans you want to talk about exercising demons, man. That was the most intense experience of my life, going through ayahuasca with those gentlemen. And they are the finest and the strongest dudes you could ever meet. And you find that in a group setting with plant medicine like ayahuasca, that's where the strength comes from, is the collective strength you can pull from. And any shaman worth his weight in salt will be the guy who knows how to wrangle all of that energy into beneficial healing to everyone. And there's sacrifices that have to be made and all of this stuff. And we knew that we were going into this ceremony, me and the boys. We were going into it knowing that we were having to go, we would have to make tough choices and sacrifices. This is kind of like what the shaman was leading us into believing. This is this whole like, prepare yourself. Like tonight we're going dark. We're going after the beast. This is not the average conversation going on at these tourist ayahuasca circles, dude. It's all flowers and rainbows and mother ayahuasca and mama this and never in my life in 11 years of that stuff before I work with these veterans did, was there a talk about, okay, we're going in on a mission, gentlemen. We are going to the core. We are going to the heart of darkness and we are bringing something back out alive or dead. But it is no longer going to rule the deep jungle. I mean, this is like our mindset going into this. And we all had to set our intentions. And my intention was, and this just popped into me. I wasn't even sure that this was what I was I wanted or anything. It just, it just, suddenly it's in my head and I go, my intention 
is that I am I am not able to resolve in my mind whether or not my sister crossed over when she killed herself. I don't know if she's stuck. And I want to know if I can help her find her way. And my mother liked to tell herself this story that she, my sister's happy and she's with my grandmother and my dog and all this shit. But that's just, I know it's my mom. She's just telling herself that story. She hasn't had any experience of it. But me, there's such a dark hole when someone kills themselves in your life, particularly your younger sister who you're so close to. You just can't, you're trying to figure it out and you blame yourself and everything that you said and did to that person, you're sure is what caused them to kill themselves. So you're carrying this tremendous amount of guilt and shame and it's eating you alive. And that's where I was at that time. It was just eating me alive. I carried an urn with my sister's ashes around with me for years in my pocket, in my bag, Mm. (laughs) you know, uh, I just wanted to be done with it. And uh, this was not this very, very quickly. Uh, this was turned into like, oh, God, this is not like anything else before. Um, it was like someone gave us the goddamn habanero sauce and said, OK, you asked for it. And uh, what I experienced over the next six hours was um, first a a very violent purging of from my lungs of this like black material that was like tumorous. And what I saw in my visions is like hornet like entities that were being purged out of me, which in my conscious processing mind was telling me or whatever, or I like to liken this to the, the voice of the plant or the voice of ayahuasca. It communicates to you telepathically, really. You just have to pay attention and it will talk to you. A lot of people will say, no, you're leading yourself through this, but it's, there's some, some of it you can't make up. And this is, they're saying like, you know, you know, your chest has been hurting. You know, you haven't been feeling well. This needs to come out first. Like this is killing you. And I believe like this medicine allowed me to cough out some precancerous masses in my upper right quadrant that were like sharp pains that were all indicative of early tumors and cancer. And I'm a heavy smoker, man. I am one serious weed head and I am not going to apologize for it. And uh, unfortunately, I've never really been able to shake the tobacco, even though I go back and forth with it. I'm not like a commercial cigarette smoker, but I do like a spleef, man. And that's heavy on your lungs, and you carry a lot of grief in your lungs, and yada, yada, yada. So I had to get rid of all of this, whatever it was, and that went first. I'm not using a pop screen, by the way, so like if I get mucusy or anything, it's going to sound really gross, and I apologize. Um, so uh, it's, all, it's all, you know, part of the, we're playing in the key of Pluto and body yeah, fluids, yeah. and it's all good, yeah. So, yeah, so after that happens and I'm hacking up this this stuff, this black stuff, um, then God, as I understand her, uh, or the plant, um, to me they are synonymous, but let's just call it the plant as, as a tool or an extension of God, is doing the assessment. Like anyone who's done ayahuasca can talk of some kind of early experience of the little vine creatures like snaking towards you in the early moments of it when it's just starting to come on. I call them the probes. Um, they're, they're just, it's the plant coming and it's assessing you. It's poking you. It's saying, okay, what's wrong? Let's see, figure out where he's sick. And then we're going to go and work on that. And the shaman and the plant work together to identify, you know, the shaman sees the energy and sees, oh, there's a big blockage here. And the plant 
probes and they go, okay, all right, let's do it. Yay team, go. Boom. And they're working together. But she also, the plant will talk to you and tell you what's up. And um, my intention was very clear. And she says, well, okay, you can do that. There's only one way there. And it's a one-way trip. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? This is my dialogue with her has always been this. It's a statement. And then do you understand what I am saying? And I repeat, I'm repeating back to her. Yes, I understand. You know, and this has been our relationship for years. You know, when she actually shows up to give me lessons, a lot of times she doesn't. If I'm not taking it seriously, she'll just, you know, she'll blow me off. And yeah, yeah, it really does happen. It's real. Like she forms a personal relationship with each person she heals because that's God because she can create all of us and heal all of us, right? These are all new concepts to the, you know, former atheist, you know, blah, 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 existentialist dude. I realized I would have made a terrible beatnik even though I thought I was going to make a great one, you know, because I didn't believe any of the shit they believed. And uh, I believe that first drafts suck. So anyway, getting back to this this soul experience, I now get it. And she's saying, look, okay, if you really get it, then at this point, you have got to let go completely into the experience. You cannot resist anything. You must trust everything I'm telling you. And everything will be fine. I promise you, you know me, I'm your mother. I love you. And you're being held in that space. Medicine is active. And you know it, you know it, you've transcended, you've crossed over into that realm and you realize you're with your, your great mother. She's not going to let anything bad happen to you. And that's, that's at that point where we all have to make that decision for ourselves. Okay, shit. Okay. Am I going to trust her or am I going to still give into my fear and pull back and then not really go there? And I, at this point I was done, dude, I was done. I was over it. And I just, whatever, okay, whatever we gotta do, let's do it. And so, thus begins this process. And first, she starts to play games with me. Because she doesn't really trust that I've actually truly got it. Because I played games with her in the past and I lied to my mother. And so she knows that, uh, well, okay, he says it now, but he's a strong, stubborn one. We need to find out what the hell he really means. So she starts to take me on this trip where she's showing me all of this Christ imagery. And she's showing me Christ being crucified. And while he's being crucified and they're pounded in the nails, she starts saying, like, remember at all times where you are. He, and she means Jesus, was in this space when he was being crucified. He did not feel the pain himself. The pain was not for him. The pain was for them. Hmm. In other words, it was all theater. It was all theater in order to foment the religion, to seal the critical mass event that the entire religion would be built on. Jesus' willing sacrifice of himself. And now she says, and now this is you. And now you got to understand, Michael, you get this. Some of your people who might know me might know this, but like I have argued with this with all the reality sandwich crowd, the maps crowd. I've said this on so many occasions. When you start messing around with plant medicine and ayahuasca in particular and LSD definitely 
and you are you know, educated, otherwise like educated, upper middle class, white male in particular, you are going to get a goddamn messianic complex. You are going to start to think that you are the reason, that you are the thing, that you are special, that you are blessed, that you are the Messiah, that you are the prophet. Well, I shouldn't say prophet because people don't understand the word prophet, and I'll get back to that as one of my closing statements. Mm. But that Messiah, really, that you are the bringer of all that is good and all that is change and all that is will make everything right. And, man, you and I know a lot of them, people that went down very deep rabbit holes with that. Longtime friend, colleague, adversaries like Daniel Pinchbeck, like brothers like Mitch Schultz, you know, everyone in our community, our extended psychonaut community, Rack, and all of the stuff in Peru, all of that weirdness that was around ayahuasca for a while, that was all part of that delusional collective, delusional state of like messianic. I mean, this was a very common thing that people were told they were going to. And then I realized, no, these aren't people aren't just being assholes. I mean, yes, they are assholes largely, but like, yes, they are narcissists. So, of course, it's feeding their narcissism. But they really are being told it because here I was now. I'm the guy who's always saying, Jesus, all you people with your Messiah complexes, would you get over it? And now I'm in a death process with the great mother about to transition. And she's telling me that I am a Messiah. She's telling me that I am going to, that people will, will remember what I did and they will worship it and all of this stuff. And she shows me like people talking about me. And at this point, I reach out and I call out for two of the brothers, two of the vets. And I'm like, you know, I asked them one, I got one of the shamans brothers. I have him holding one hand. I have one of the vets holding the other hand. The other guy's kind of calling them around and she's showing, she's telling me that this is like my disciples coming around and everything, right? And, like at one point I needed to wake up the vets to get them to participate in like what was coming next and I, and I'm having to shout at them and she's like shout at them like a general that's what they respond to like I'm like you know god damn it it's a general wake the fuck up people like and I'm screaming at these vets and I'm not understanding but I'm doing everything she's telling me to do and it all makes sense later but she's giving me all of this messianic stuff she's telling me that there's going to be a religion built on me and she's saying that, well, you know, but here's the thing. That only happens if you do the supreme sacrifice. Like, you've done it. You've decided. You've already – you're going to give up your life to rescue your sister. That is the noble sacrifice. The supreme sacrifice is what you'll be remembered for. And you must die horribly. <laughs> <laughs> she says, look, see? And she's pointing at Jesus being crucified over here in this part of the vision. And I'm going, oh, God, really? She goes, but remember, I told you you didn't feel it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, okay. And I'm like, I saw the Passion of the Christ. I can do this. She goes, no, 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 no. That was that epoch. Don't you remember 2012? We're in a new epoch. And that was a joke. That literally was a joke that she makes with me because she knows how I think and she knows my sense of humor. So that joke is we're in the new epoch, you know, the dawning of the age of Aquarius and all that shit. But she also meant it too. Yeah, literally, we're in a new epoch. So he was the archetype or the symbol of last epoch. It was the age of Pisces. He was the symbol. Jesus, astrologically, is the fish. And the whole story of Pisces and yada yada. But he also was the cross and the symbol. So that was what people understood as the supreme sacrifice in that epoch. She says, but this is the new era. This is the era of the mother. This is the era of the earth and the planet and saving all that is natural. <laughs> and you are now with the medicine and the vine. So... <laughs> You have to have an equal equivalent sacrifice commensurate with a messiah 
that is equally horrible, but is a symbol of the times. And she says, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to allow yourself to be eaten alive and digested by an anaconda. <laughs> which is the, because the anaconda is the living symbol of the vine, the ayahuasca vine. So she's telling me, sorry, this is the trip. If you want to save the planet, you have to show people that there's, that you are the planet. You have to be eaten by this thing and pooped out and go right back to Mother Earth. And I'm going, whoa. And I've had a morbid, mortal fear of snakes most of my life that I only recently got over about 10 years ago. It's with the Indiana Jones thing. Now, now my greatest nightmare is happening. I have to allow myself to be eaten by an anaconda. And she goes, this is also her sense of humor with me. She says to me, yeah, but don't worry. Just be fascinated by the process. Let your scientific geek come out. You'll love it. <laughs> okay. okay, now this is all totally legit, dude. I'm, I am not making up or embellishing one bit of this. I may be like phrasing it in English that you guys can understand because so much of it is emoto-telepathic language. Like you know what being, you're being told, but it's not like you're hearing somebody saying it in your ear. So as part of that, I'm sure I'm transliterating it into some a lot more Charles speak. But this is essentially what the conversation is. So she tells me I have to, like, prepare myself. And I say, okay. And she goes, you have to just let go of your muscles. They'll do the rest. And as soon as I do that, the shaman moves me into a different position. He crosses my arms on my chest. The guys are moving me around. And I'm thinking, wow, this is legit, like. They're all like, I'm getting the like death ceremony here and everyone, no one's saying anything. No one's panicking. This is real. And I remember saying it out loud. Is this real? And they're all like, yes, Charles, it's real. And I'm asking like, am I really dying? Is this happening as opposed? And they're thinking I'm asking, you know, is this real? Like, are we really here? Like all doing ayahuasca or something? They don't know exactly what I'm asking them. So each time they confirm shit for me, or they come closer and they pat my head and they say, Charles, just let go. It's going to be okay. I'm thinking like, oh, wow, they all know it's real. And this is what I tell everybody. I say out loud, I say, wow, you guys are going to have a hell of an end to your fucking movie. Because I was there filming a documentary about vets doing plant medicine. And here the story was that the director dies during the filming. So I'm laughing about this shit. I'm cracking up because it's funny to me because I've let go of my life. I've accepted I'm not going to come out of there. I'm cracking up by the fact that I'm going to fucking die in the Amazon. This is crazy. Like I literally I came down here to make a movie and I'm going to die. And I'm wrapping my head around it and it's really funny to me. And I'm like, okay, man, fuck it. Let's rock and roll. Let's do it. And so she's like, no, 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 no. She's like, you can't go like that. You're dirty. I'm like, what are you talking about? But I'm saying it very politely because, you know, I'm just going with it. Like when they say let go completely, I'm just nodding and saying, yes. Okay, what does that mean? She says, you're dirty. Do you understand what I'm telling you? And I said, no. She says, there's too much holding you back. Do you, do you feel like you can just move freely into the light? And I said, I don't even see light. She says, exactly. Mm. And she says, you have got too much holding you back to this world right now. So we need to go through each of those and figure it out. So now for the next X hours, I'm going through each of the relationships in my life, conflicts, situations, unresolved conflicts, everything. Having to go through a process of forgiveness, letting go. Forgiveness, letting go. Forgiveness, letting go. If I want to get to my sister, I got to do this. This is an exercise that's necessary. And each time I forgive and let go, it's like a layer of film is peeled off 
and there's a vague, vague, dull glow that suddenly starts to come brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And by the end of this process, I am totally bathed in the white light, the proverbial white light, whatever the fuck you want to call it. A lot happened at this point that I don't really understand. It's all jumbled up. It's confusing for me. But as far as I've been able to put it into any type of chronology that makes sense, at this point, I was informed that I had broken through. I had now crossed over. I actually did not feel my body anymore. It was cold and paralyzed for a while, and then I didn't feel it. Now I'm bathed in white light. I still feel as an adult consciousness. And it's saying, Shh. well, actually, one of my one of my deceased dogs, my favorite dog that I wrote about in my book, comes running into the maloka first. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, Millhouse, what are you doing here? Like, what are they? I'm like wigging out at this time. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, uh, come on. And I'm starting to think, oh, this is bullshit, man. And now I'm seeing my dog. Like, I'm starting to think this whole thing's just my mind fucking with me. And I'm starting to get like, I'm starting to lose hope. And she's like, oh, don't do that. She's like, of course, I thought you wanted to see your dog. And she's like, wait till you hear what he's been up to. I'm telling you, God has a hilarious sense of humor, but she also knows me and she knows how frustrated she is with me. So she's like really snarky with me. You know, it's like she's a woman. She like will not let me forget that I fucked up with her in the past. Right. So she makes me go through the extra mile to get everything really bluntly. But she's also super sweet. She brings my dog in and she's and my dog is like now my dog can talk to me. I mean, he doesn't like stand up and go, well, Reggie, you know, but he's like communicating emotionally. And he's like, she's here. I've been with her. It's okay. She's safe, but she's afraid. She won't come in. And when then this, like some weird shit was communicated to me all about, okay, now you need to work together with the shamans and the vets. You guys need to all work together because you need to create a perimeter because too much negative too much dark was expelled inside the perimeter and you need to reestablish the boundaries and so what i was being told is my sister's spirit was on the other side of this like ring of darkness that had been expelled from all me and the vets through our catharsis and she was just this confused spirit on the other side of it couldn't cross over to come and see us she was afraid so my dog my dog vanishes and goes back to her and i have to like wake up these guys and start screaming at them and tell them form a perimeter form a perimeter now i have i had all of this recorded unfortunately everything i that i ever created artistically for the last 20 years got ripped off over the summer out of my car it was all on drives and stuff but i had all of this recorded it was in early cuts of soldiers in the vine and stuff I'm screaming bloody murder, like, come on, you got a fucking former printer, or we have to get her, we have to let her in. And at some point, I guess we did, and then she shows up, and my memory, my experience of this is that the minute she showed up, everything changed, suddenly nothing mattered, everything, the maloka, everything disappeared, and me and my sister were instantly these child spirits of how we remember each other at our happiest time, when we were just little, little kids. And our world was just each other and our mother and father. Mm. And we were these little spirits playing together, like out in the Amazon right there, like outside the netting of the Maloka. <laughs> and I'm laughing and I'm going, oh, my God, of course, the Garden of Eden is the Amazon. Duh, how did I not see this? And the whole Christianity and world religion thing is all playing into this experience I'm having right in front of me of being in the Amazon. And it's all like, no, dummy, it all started here, like... This is real life. This is the lungs. This is the womb of the planet. Not Jerusalem here. It was deep, man. But this whole thing about the messianic stuff, I woke up to it. 
I kind of forgot that part because it chronologically it was before my sister showed up. But at one point I just I had to put my foot down and I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. You're playing with my mind. I'm like, you're playing with my mind. You know that that's not right. You know, I'm not it. And she says, finally. And she says, but what does it mean? Do you understand what I'm asking? And I said, what it means is that Jesus represented the sacrifice. His sacrifice is a metaphor or a symbol for that terrible sacrifice that all of us must make at some point in our lives for someone else or for something bigger than ourselves. And that we all, Jesus meant to teach us that we all could make that sacrifice. But the people who created the religion and created power said that it was only him and that we needed to be in debt to him forever for it. And she's like, got it. As a half Jew, I just want to make a point that, you know, it never occurred to me until you just said this, that usury is built into Christianity. (laughs) Like it it emerges from that context of the debt-based creation of value. And it's like, okay, so Jesus is the central bank where, you know, all of us, are like, living in in poverty, spiritual uh, poverty, because uh, of you don't know how right you are. Though. That's the scary part, you know. Jesus Incorporated is a Rothschild creation. You know what I'm saying, and definitely a uh, a Merovingian creation. Anyway, that's that's just all a bunch of goofy pseudoscience and history. I actually don't know whether either of those statements are true, um, but there's a lot of people who think that. So you asked me about souls, man, and I got to tell you, up until that point, like, you know, souls were nothing. And then suddenly someone's soul was on the line. And so I have two options here. I can interpret this either on literally as this actually happened and I had a trans-dimensional afterlife transitional experience into the other realm that we go when we die. Or my mind which is pretty creative and pretty formidable (laughs) at times when it's not being stupid, concocted this wild, elaborate fantasy as as a means of allowing myself to create a narrative that allowed me to let it go and feel good about everything. I don't know which is real, but the net result was I came out of it accepting her passing. I came out of it truly feeling as if I had connected with her again, so that there was no words or anything that was necessary. It was just her pure, oh, God, this will make me cry. Her pure, sweet, laughing, innocent child presence before all of this stuff happened with her that led her to take her own life, that she was happy. That was all that mattered. She was free, and she was where she needed to be. Well, shit, that was good enough for me. You know, what more could you ask for? And, you know, if it ends up being some story that I told myself, I'm sure by the time I either admit it or figure it out, I won't care anymore because I don't feel the way I used to. And although there isn't a day that goes by that I don't miss her, I don't think about her. She's never coming back. And, uh... I was living in the past and I didn't even know it. I was living in my last relationship and I was living in my last job and I was living in a family home that didn't exist anymore and all of my memories and everything that was defining me was all living in this world that just didn't exist anymore. And I was wondering why I was collapsing all around it. (laughs) It's because there was no more me anymore. There was no more world that justified this person that I was. 
And all of this kind of set me, all of this kind of set me on the path to figuring out who I really was and what I really was supposed to be doing. And I got to tell you, I don't know if I know anything or figured any shit out, but I do know a couple of things, I think. And one of them is it never looks like you think. It never comes to you as you think it would. It's so much less glamorous than you can imagine. It's a lot of work. But the sense of knowing who you are, the sense of being able to love yourself, laugh with and at yourself, the ability to just say, okay, yeah, this is going to suck. Let's get ready for this because you've seen this before. You know how to get through this. No one said it would be easy. Did you... You knew we were on tour when when you knew when I was friends with the Cloud Cult guys. Yeah, and I picked the song. No one said it would be easy as the, you know, the title track of the the drug war movie. You know, and it's true. It's like man, those guys really were they were super wise and super 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 fucking perceptive back then. You know, you came up from underground in a million little pieces. It's like ah, you know. That's what it was. You know, I had to go away. We talk a lot about archetypes and Carl Jung and gods and kings and goddesses and crap. Well, you know, most people won't actually be able to tell you what any of that shit means. And, or they'll tell you a bunch of pop culture versions of it. But I'll tell you, there's a couple of things. And one of them is, you know, we were all born under a certain archetypal designation. And um, under a certain system, uh, there's four character or our character archetypes the prophet the nomad the artist and the king and depending on which generation you're born in that determines which one you are i am a nomad mm. i'm a gen x nomad but all of us uh, engage in the basic archetypes the ones that campbell elucidated first in the hero of a thousand pieces we all take our hero's journey we take multiple hero's journeys throughout our lives we go through multiple dark nights of the soul. This is all a quantifiable phenomenon. And if you haven't read The Hero of a Thousand Faces, please read it. It's awesome. And our, in our hero's journey, if we're going to complete the journey, if we're going to learn the lessons that the archetype is meant to teach us about life and navigating life, then anyone will tell you that hero's journey involves betrayal, disillusionment the loss of the throne the exile the long trials to get back and then finally resolution and reconciliation but as a different person no longer the young hero that left but now the wizened king or whatever and the message is you're not the same person when you arrive at the end of this goal like life is all about change and it's all about trials and tribulations and pain and fear but you do it all for love and you do it all because what drives us is human. And the last thing I'll say, and probably the most controversial of them all, is that um, I also had to kind of understand that the role that I play archetypally in our culture and spiritually in a lot of ways is that of profit. And when you say that, people immediately go, oh, my God, he just talked about messianic complexes, and now he calls himself a prophet, okay? And you got to stay, okay, folks, everybody fucking don't get your panties in a bunch. Just keep your top on, relax, take a breath, and hear me out. Prophets, 
have been glamorized, unfortunately. So our popular understanding of them is as like the Prophet Muhammad, as the leader and all-knowing authority of the Islamic religion. But that is not what the general understanding or experience of the Prophet is. The Prophet is the one who sees the problem when no one else does, starts preaching about the problem when no one else does, and generally dies a horrible death at the hands of the power structure he is fighting against or the very people he's trying to save. And that's the key thing, the very people he's trying to save. And the prophet is not trying to save them by saying, I know the way. They may say, I know the way, but it's not them. They're trying to say, like, you know this way, you know what living in truth is, you've lost your way. The prophet is the one who stands atop the crowd and says, you're fucking up. And that's why they burn them, hang them, gouge them, fucking draw and quarter them, give them the full inquisition. Uh, They do not live, and that's why they get martyred by the Catholic Church thousands of years later, you know, or whatever. Whatever their body that finally holds them up and gives them their legacy. My friend Tony Lancasterly, on her bio, it says that she is the Joan of Arc of blockchain, and I'm like, are you, are really? Do you want that? Do you want to be? Do, wow. like, do you want to be exonerated in 500 years or whatever? You know, like it doesn't. It's not something to romanticize. <laughs> no, and and also it belies a fundamental misunderstanding of the actual historical story of Joan of Arc. But I digress. <laughs> And the thing is, is I, uh, I really am. I'm, I am a prophet. I'm the kid that points out that the emperor has no clothes. Nobody liked that kid. You know, if you've ever read the book, man, you look at that frame and he's like, but he's naked. And you see everyone turns their head and looks at that kid and they all have evil snarl cartoon face. Like they want to kill the kid. No one likes it when you say, Hey, you guys are doing it wrong. Because their first question is, well, who the fuck are you tell us what we're doing? Who the fuck do you know you're doing it right? And this goes back to the Light and Shadow Tour, dude. I don't have to know how to do it right to know that you are doing it wrong. Because <laughs> <laughs> what you are doing is a bet, right? Because that's a fair safe bet, man. And being a prophet, what does it mean, man? It also means that you're never going to experience the things that other people experience in life. You're never going to feel the joy of holding your own child or making love to your own wife or laying your parents to rest. It means you're going to be alone and you're going to be, your whole existence is defined by your alienation from the status quo. It's a painful reality. But if you can accept it, and I think, you know, having died and all that shit and having gone through all that made it easy for me to accept it. I'm like, okay, whatever. This is this is just the fine print, I guess. But you accept your role, and you just realize that you've got to do what you do. You're going to do it without people understanding it, often violently fucking rejecting it. You won't be understood until long after you're gone, when some dumbass actually, like, pauses enough to sit around and go, you know what, that dude Charles, he had a he had a good point with that thing. Wow, I never thought of it that way. But it happens in time. But in their lifetimes, the prophets are despised. No one wants to listen to them. Shut up already. And I'm used to that. You think you'll be exonerated by history? Oh, most definitely. I've I'm like you know that scene in Stripes. When Bill Murray's trying to rally the fucking guys to go do the invasion into Czechoslovakia. 
And he says, like, come on, you know, we're the United States of America. You know, we're like 17 and one, right? It's kind of like the same thing. Like, you know, I'm trying to rally the troops in, into saying, like, we need to expose what we really are here. And until we're willing to do that, until we're willing to make a silly invasion of fucking Czechoslovakia, it's just like going to Wisconsin. We're never going to get anywhere. You know, am I going to be exonerated? I'm definitely I'm, what I'm wrong about. My one in the 17 and one is I definitely never, ever saw Trump getting elected. I'm sorry. I admit it. I surrender. <laughs> I was absolutely convinced it was going to be a, a Hillary landslide. I thought it was going to be the most embarrassing blowout in presidential history, and it was, but it just worked out the other way. So that being said, I've stopped prognosticating because I already proved myself right, man. I was ahead of the curve on almost every media trend and every policy trend on everything that I had been involved in. Drug policy reform, prison system reform, deportation issue, PTSD. I was year, a couple of years ahead of that whole curve. And eventually I had to say to myself, dude, you have good instincts. You did the right thing. It all worked out. On some level, I know that my work played a role in some of these larger projects because they use them as source material or screen them as part of their own research or building their films. And you could see where that was even noticeable. The biggest influence my work ever had was in Tijuana, man. You go there today and you see a totally different Zona Norte that has been revivified and uh, improved uh, because of the backlash that my film caused in Mexico. It didn't make much of a splash here in the United States at all because no one gives a fuck about Mexicans. But let me tell you, down there, it means something. And during the Trump campaign, people really watched Plastic People a lot on Netflix. It was one of the more highly viewed documentaries it was in the top 10 for trump's campaign season it was wild man my royalty checks were like fucking what you're used to getting like a couple hundred dollars suddenly suddenly you get like a five thousand dollar check in the mail you're like wait a second hold on it was impressive but it was all trump people see my film was the only one on deportation so when he was saying deport them all people were going to look for movies that said what deportation was about and then what they saw was a very progressive-minded film trying to reform the system, and they hated it. And they said, you fucking liberal piece of shit, and left me one star, but I still got paid for it. That's capitalism. <laughs> anyway, okay, <laughs> just so we're all clear and on the same fence about it. So I go back to Tijuana for the first time in a couple of three years since the film, since I stopped shooting the film in 2012. And I see that uh, Zona Norte's cleaned up, uh, Revolution's all rebuilt, like there's a now a gigantic wall barrier wall that is down the middle of the Rapida to keep pe the deportees from running across the highway and so they don't get run over anymore. And there's no armies of homeless deportees. There's no thousand people waiting outside the shelter to get a piece of bread in the morning. They're all gone. And I'm sitting there going, how did this happen? I call up my friend Jorge Nieto, who's the investigative reporter in Tijuana on, on television, who was one of the two guys that the, the, whose work the film was based around. And I'm like, dude, what happened? He says, yeah, the, basically, when they heard that the Gringos had a film on Netflix about how fucked up Tijuana was <laughs> <laughs> and how we don't take care of our own people and everything, and they know me and they know what I've been squawking about, but once they saw my shit and your shit on Netflix, they freaked out. That's the power of media. In, during my three-year contract, I had so many doors open to me because I was on Netflix. It was unbelievable. I mean, it, unbelievable, like... You get invited to speak places just because you got a film on Netflix. You got people calling you up all the time, asking you to produce their films. It's like, dude, do you realize I have no money? <clears throat> do you realize how little we make, you know? So 
Profits never make money either. <laughs> and each one of us can move through these archetypes. I mean, at times we're a king and at times we're an artist or a nomad or a prophet. Or... But who we really are at our core will always be what drives us. From the day I was fucking able to talk, I was always pointing my finger and going naked. And at this point, I've like spent my whole life, I spent my whole life fighting against it. And now I finally said, okay, I am what I am. Now let's see what I can do with it. Now let's see how we can really do something. You're now a refined middle-aged gentleman, Charles. You'll be 48 in less than two months. Let's see how your craft and your art and your articulation has evolved. Let's really put it to the test. So I simplified, man. I'm going back to writing, and I'm really going to dive in and um, come back with a couple of really good projects. One is the shadow people that I told you about, and I'm also going to after many years of kicking around this idea and realizing that the real, true, in-depth, dramatic story of the Ibe- history of Ibogaine has never been told, I wanted to do a long-form doc on it for years, but there's not enough media laying around to tell the story properly. You'd have to like have someone animated or some shit like this. There's not even enough photographs. Like It was a very secretive underground, so there's not a lot of documentation. So after going around and around and around with some of the key players in that scene who were there and trying to, okay, well, how do we do this? What do we do? Guy, who's got a movie? Who's got film? Who's got photos? What? Us? No, nothing. Uh, it's like, okay. And then Eric Taub, legendary Eric Taub, probably the single most influential figure in the Ibogaine thing, even more so than Howard Lotsoff, because Eric Taub created the Therapeutic Detox Underground. Eric Tom says, hey, why don't we do like, because uh, he talks like Woody Allen, kind of Woody allen kind of like, he's very New York Jewy. He's, why, not, why don't we do like, uh, you know, like a screenplay? Like, why don't you write it all in fiction? I'd love to see myself played by a younger man. So I thought about that for a few months. And my, you know, my dramatic writing self, like, started kicking up saying, hey, you haven't really indulged me since the late 90s. Can we come out and play for a while? And I had worked on a TV series with one of my partners, DJ, in L.A. when I was living down there. I wrote like four drafts of a pilot and sketched out a whole season of a dramatic series called Crazy Talk. And it was like all set around a talk radio show or a podcast like this. But it was also about a dude who had gone crazy. It was when I was first starting to grapple with how crazy I am or this notion of crazy and exploring it as a, as a meme and as a theme and so first I attacked it from a fictional standpoint, wrote a bunch of pilots, liked it, but it just kind of wasn't clicking, it wasn't getting there. But it sparked, it's like, oh, I really like, I love writing dialogue, I forgot about all this. So I got to accomplish two things, and one is to write something serious, and the other is going to be to write something that's dramatic, but entertaining. So I'm going to turn the whole history of Ibogaine into a dramatic, like, maybe two or three episode series. Working with all of the remaining living key players. Dimitri Mugianis, Patrick Krupa, Eric Taub, Norma Lotsoff on some level, Ken Alper, Deborah Mash, and a few people that you probably never heard of. But, you know, I've connected with all these people over the years. I've, you know, I entered into the Ibogaine world as a journalist, writing about it and making media, and then ended up as a well, I'm not a practitioner in the sense that I'd, I'm not a counselor and I don't administer medicine, but I am a um, integrationist or an integration type counselor in the sense that I help them beforehand by educating them in their intake with everything that they're going to experience during their medicine work. And then I, you know, I explain everything from the, you know, what it's going to be like physically, how it works on a 
physiological, biochemical, neurological level, psycho-spiritual. And then I help them process it afterwards. I help them integrate their experience into their like reality, and, and which helps it last. And seems like um, that, seems like that seems work like in that. particular <laughs> is to go back to this psychedelic harm reduction metaphor. I was talking about this with the, the my graduate advisor, who I went to you know a study integral philosophy, which is all about you know taking the fractured world of knowledge, all of this specialized siloed stuff and then bringing it together into a you know a, a more complete view of things but that culture you know when i was in school 10 15 years ago that movement was completely besotten with what you were just talking about <laughs> this this like messianic like let's push the river <laughs> we're going to help facilitate this evolution and in the years since I've gotten out of school, both me and the head of the program, Sean Hargens, who's like one of the smartest people I've ever met, he'll be on the show soon, you know, we, we realized that change was happening too fast, that it didn't make sense to try and affect any more change, that that was just contributing, yeah. that this Silicon Valley boner for disruption is exactly. really, 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 that's the thing, like what we really require now is a team of people that are capable of facilitating integration. It's like, how do you make sense of all of this change? How do you live with this in your fucking life? You know, it's not just like, oh, let's 50 ayahuasca ceremonies a week. Plus we're going to do a full detox. You know, we're going to do, you're going to change your diet. <laughs> shaman raving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We call it, we call it shaman raving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey dude, I, I mean, I hate to disillusion you, but that impulse that, Savior complex never really went anywhere. It's like this. Culturally speaking, in the 60s and 70s, we put our faith into political leaders. They all got assassinated. In the 80s and 90s, we put all of our faith into actors and celebrities. They all turned out to be putzes, right? In the last 20 years, we've been putting all of our faith into Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and billionaires. This is a huge mistake. This is a goddamn cataclysmic mistake. These motherfuckers do not care about us. Like Elon Musk has the greatest PR campaign of anyone I've ever seen, but he is all in this for the reasons that you do not know. He is not trying to advance the world or advance science. He's got a military contract, a NASA contract to develop rockets, which makes him richer than you could possibly imagine. He's dealing with AI. He's going to be a person of unfathomable control at some point. And then you're going to really see who the real dude is. And most of these guys did not get to become these tech billionaires by being nice guys. Like Peter Thiel is like probably one of the most reprehensible human beings I've ever come across. But this guy has got juice, man. He basically snapped his fingers and got New Zealand citizenship where it takes anybody else 12 years. <laughs> you know, so I so what's happened is we're always looking externally for a savior. Always. It's in our nature. Most humans, nine out of ten, are wired to follow, not to lead. For people like me that are wired to lead and we don't know how to follow and we don't fit into society unless we're leading something, it baffles us. We're sitting there going, dude, hello. McFly, like wake the fuck up, people. But you can't do that. And that was the biggest mistake I ever made. My friend Casey Vandemert, she's one of my best friends from Chicago, one of the classiest women I've ever known, who really kind of mentored me in the whole Burning Man culture. 
and crafted like my look and all of this shit when I was like into that whole stuff and I was like doing fire dancing and all that shit. Experiencing my second childhood is what I call it uh, now, but um, at the time I was taking it all very seriously. She used to say, I like this Charles better because she knew activist Charles. She knew me when I was doing the grassroots thing prior to Burning Man. And she says that Charles was just screaming at empty corners all the time. Whoa. Yeah, man. Yeah, but that's just the that's, thing. That's, that's just the thing about, about activism is that you got to work on your own heart or you're just shadow boxing all the time. That's so true, dude. The, the activist world was the angriest, most self-entitled group of fucking maladjusted children I have ever worked with in my life, dude. It was, and the anarchist kids were the worst, man. They were just people with like pathological defiance issues. And they wrapped it all up around noble political causes. And some of it was legit and a lot of it was bullshit. Because ultimately they were just angry and they wanted to smash shit at its core when you gave them the ability to choose. They never chose constructive, long-term tactical planning. They chose anger and rage. And they may have chose it because right next to them was a cop dressed up like an anarchist with dread saying, hey, let's go smash shit. But it's the fact that they were so easily led to, hey, let's go smash shit. There are people that are at this point that will tell me that I've completely sold out my radical roots. That I used to be the guy that would say, attack the system, go at it. Throw yourself Mario savio style on the wheels and the gears and tell them that we're not going to take it anymore but man those guys were in their 20s when they were talking that shit and it was a different world and they had a lot of resources and people were sketchy and hesitant to like go and bash their brains in guess what the police aren't like that anymore <laughs> we live in a different world you can't take this system on head on the only thing that's going to work is the swarm theory. And swarms are built through networks. And we have to take advantage of the technology we have, which we have done in bits and pieces and fits and starts with Twitter and Signal and other encrypted apps that we've used in certain situations from Occupy to Standing Rock and yada, yada, yada. But we've never put it into a cohesive tactical strategy. We've never outlined, even articulated, what a postmodern post-tech, quasi-wet interface fucking activist network would actually look like. You know, when you, you have this level of technology, we have not yet learned how to turn it on its head and use it against the people that developed it. We're still lagging way behind them. We still want to go out in the streets and protest. Man, I'm not going to make any friends by saying this, but I got to tell you, like... As much as I was happy on a inspirational level to see the Women's March last year and to see that many women mobilize that quickly, that was dope. Don't get me wrong. But it didn't do a goddamn thing, really. I mean, you could make an argument that the Women's March was the beginning of what became a big year of women's liberation. You could make that argument solidly, but you would have to... Put in an asterisk and say that that was a, a certain exclusive set of circumstances. And you look at all these other mass mobilizations going back to, let's say, let's going back to Seattle 99, when the new era of protest started. And that's when I jumped on board. Okay? You go back that far, we have not accomplished shit. The WTO did not shut down because of our protests. The WTO shut down because we couldn't get past the second round of voting and approvals. There were too many issues that came up because the first round was too flawed. Okay? 
Trans-Pacific Partnership was taken apart by Donald Trump single-handedly. It would have gotten put together had he not done that. Trade packs are the way of the world. We're not going to stop that. The Standing Rock thing was one gigantic jerk-off. Nobody could see that they were fighting a battle that had already been lost. There was no way they were going to stop that pipeline. The tactical organizers had to have been in on it because anyone who's worth their weight in salt as an organizer on that level would have known that it was a losing battle. To make the decision to just make a symbolic stand over something like that at the time that they did during that crucial election, when all of that energy that was poured into Standing Rock pulled away from election organizing to try to keep Trump out of office... These things are not coincidences, but people refuse to see them as connected. Because they'll say, what are you saying? There's a huge conspiracy at Standing Rock? And I said, no, it doesn't need to be a huge conspiracy. If there's a council of six Native Americans, all you need is one of them that's an informant. And anybody who thinks that there aren't informants in the Native American community does not know the history of the Native American community or what fucking Wounded Knee or the Lakota or AIM was about in the first place, even though they're flocking there to help these people and they're, they're second-generation descendants. So, like, there's no real understanding of the history of tactical organizing, and yet people want to jump in. But what everybody wants to be is Shailene Woodley. You know, they want to fly in on their helicopter. They want all the photographs taken. Look at me. I'm at Standing Rock. Here's my live video where I'm going to blather on for 10 minutes about shit I don't understand. And, yeah, I'm being harsh because, you know, again, when you have been in the streets and you've had to go head-to-head against that power establishment, man, you take this shit real seriously. Those kids got hurt out there. They got hurt out there and they were willingly thrown as cannon fodder at the police because there was a certain group that were angry enough and thought that their responsibility was to go out there and act up and to tear down the system. And that's they were terribly misguided because none of that did shit. It reinforced this belief that they were just disrupting shit, that they were fighting a losing battle, that it was already a done deal. They should have focused on states further down the line. When you looked at the actual design of where the pipelines went, none of it was actually threatening the water supply of the native settlements that were there. You could argue that all that was bullshit information, it was all propaganda. No, propaganda is when a native woman records a Facebook Live video saying that they're spraying chemical weapons all over the camps. And everybody you know, from your goddamn stepmother on down to every hippie in Nevada City, forwards you that video. And nobody asks, who is this person? Has this person been identified? What is this person talking about? Has there been any, like, ground samples taken? Is there any video? Is there any this? Is there any that? No, they all take it at their word instantly. Why? Because she's a native woman. She would never lie. You have no idea who this person is. You have no idea that every single government agency has informants of every race and stripe now that infiltrate everything. And it's all coordinated through what's called fusion centers, which are located all over the country. There's like eight of them. And they're intelligence processing centers for dissident activity. Now, very few people at Standing Rock were aware of this. Most people hopped on the train because they thought, oh, yay, winter burning man. Let's go have ceremony. (laughs) And anyone who tries to deny that is full of shit, man. Because even the people that had the best of intentions, they were still the wrong intentions. There was a lot of bourgeois reformism and like white man's burden shit going on that has no place in a movement like that. The natives should have been much clearer. And I'm a guy who like had a Native American sister and, and is pretty deeply in touch with shit as much as a white guy can be without actively pursuing like tribal membership. But I know enough about the politics to know 
They should have taken Malcolm X's approach and saying, look, white people can help us, but they can't join us. And that would have been both humbling. White people would have known their place. They wouldn't have tried to take the goddamn thing over like they did. I mean, Jesus, they built fucking domes and festivals. I mean, yes, they were creating a base camp. But there were people that literally showed up there to rave it out. They thought it was a party. And even if they were a small percentage, it still happened. I mean, that should never happen when I was organizing protests. Those people were too dour to ever have fun. Throw a party? Are you kidding me? We're supposed to sit around and complain about everything, you know? Do you think it's possible to have fun and affect social change? And I ask this specifically in the context of James P. Carse calling back to something you'd said earlier about the way that we engage or do not engage the system. You know, you're talking about being a one man army against the military industrial prison. I'll tell you what, Mm -hmm. I was wrong. You actually can. There is a way to do it, to have fun and change things. And, but it's, it is a, God, I don't want to call it a passive system, but it's an unintentional system. It's, it's a, it's a consequence rather than an an intentional strategy. Um, there was in the 1970s in this country, a cultural revolution in the place of a actual political revolution, which happened in most of the rest of the world, uh, really kicking off in an elevated form in 1968. So by the 70s, massive cultural and political changes were happening everywhere. And what had happened was we had started a cultural revolution with the 60s and everything. And in the 70s, that's when the actual revolution happened because in the 60s, it was still a fringe thing. It was still countercultural. By 1970, that shit went mainstream. Everyone started growing their hair. Everyone started smoking weed. Everybody started dressing in vibrant colors. Television had hippie-based programming, you know? This was a cultural revolution. Now, there's a lot of people, like myself, that will argue that a, lar- a big component of that was the, you know, what's alternately called things like the steam valve concept and the idea of the permi- permissive revolution. Or, okay, we're going to let you, we're going to redirect this revolution towards something that's more to our liking, and that actually keeps our system alive. So rather than a political revolution that would have redistributed wealth and resources, what we had was a cultural revolution that kept the capitalist engine alive. Because it told, instead of like saying, get together selflessly and organize to change your culture to make it more equitable, it was, you can be whoever and whatever you want now. We let go. You can dress any way you want to dress. You can live any lifestyle you want. You can live anywhere you want. You can do whatever you want. And after all the 60s and the riots and everything and the early 70s and Nixon and Watergate and the fucking church committee, Americans were like, fuck it. We'll take it. We're done. This shit is exhausting. And so, disco, (laughs) platform shoes, cocaine, rampant sex and everything and for a number of years america looked a lot like the fucking collapse of the roman empire everyone was getting real fucked up this is what happens every cycle after a revolution or after a major political or cultural upheaval people check out man like we've had it people are checking out into an epidemic of opiates right now because of the exact same reasons they've had it too much has happened just since 9-11 alone, we are in a totally different world. And people are slow to catch up, and they are struggling really hard. And they are flipping their goddamn wigs. And, Garf, some of us got to be there to hold the lantern. <laughs> some of us got to lead these fuckers out of the sewers. Some of us got to say, hey, look, I lived down here for a while. It's all good. I know where I'm going. 
And I think that's partially like suddenly I'm starting to understand more my role in life. I'm not going to save anybody. I'm not going to save anything. There's nothing worth saving. Change happens when people want it. The inexorable power of the masses will be exercised one way or the other, or the forces of repression to hold them back will get stronger and stronger. It's a one-to-one equation. It's math. So I don't think that we can change anything. I think we're spending inordinate amounts of time, wasting inordinate amount of time in all of these fucking brain power sessions, whatever people call them, uh, brainstorming sessions and fucking paying, you know, Elon Musk $1,200 to go to a day-long conference to throw around ideas on how to save the world so that he can go make billions off of them. You can get stiffed and nothing ever actually changes. You know, I mean, am I cynical? Well, I've always been a cynic, but like... You know, irony, sarcasm, cynicism, it's all part of my act, my character in a lot of ways. It's also, it's a highly adapted system of coping, of creating humor and subversion and all kinds of things to take away the emotional impact of, oh man, we are so fucked. (laughs) We are so fucked. So the short answer to your question, brother, is that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. People have known this for a long time. Anyone who's telling you there's going to be this hate, you know, this hastened collapse or anything like that doesn't have any idea what they're talking about. Because there's so much that has been layered into the system now to prevent one of these like instant collapses that the only thing that really could do it is an EMP blast, an asteroid, a full scale war involving nuclear weapons, or some kind of instantaneous virus or blight that either wipes out the ecosystem in one fell swoop or takes out two-thirds of the planet with a bug. Now, all these things are likely statistically, but are they going to happen? I don't know, man. I don't think we're that lucky. (laughs) I think we're just going to continue to grind this planet away until it really does look like Blade Runner 2049. And it is just a wasteland that can no longer produce life. And of course, in Blade Runner twenty forty nine earlier, we, that, there's that whole thing of everyone thinks they're the Messiah. Everyone has the messianic memory, and what's yes? You know, what, is, what is that thing? Like you know, what is really going on there? Why do all of us feel that thing? You know, I mean, maybe because we feel so helpless. Because we feel so helpless, we need a savior. Or but like, why, been pro- why does ayahuasca tell everybody? Oh, you're the one. Oh, yeah. that's that's see that's thing though is that i don't think it does what i think it does is that it speaks to you in imagery i think it speaks to you in archetypal imagery and i think a lot of the imagery that people are shown because i've been i've experienced this too i've had visions of myself before great crowds singing icaros now listen i can do the tom waits thing but i'm not gonna you're not gonna sign me up to sing any ayahuasca ceremonies anytime soon okay but there i was in my vision seeing myself singing in front of thousands and thousands of people now, if I am not adept enough to reflect on this, what I've seen, and wonder, am I being spoken to in symbols and codes rather than literal imagery? If I was lazy, if I was insecure, and I needed some validation, and like, let's say that entheogens was my shtick, and that's how I was making money, I'm going to be more inclined to take my vision literally and think that I'm being told a special message about me. And when I'm surrounded by sycophants that will blow smoke up my ass and tell me that I'm great... I'm not apt to hear somebody say, you know, have you ever thought about this just in pure terms of like symbolic language? (laughs) Nobody actually says that. They're just like, you are so wonderful. And I've seen it, dude. I've lived it. 
I mean, people even used to kiss my ass, which is kind of scary, you know, if you think about it. The ass, yeah. It's like, do you know, do you know me? It's like, <laughs> do you have any idea what a fucking dick I am? Like, but that that guy too, like the guy that was a serious asshole, like that was a guy. Man, healing is is a what did you call it? A uh, an ordeal. An ordeal, man. Exactly. Having to face yourself in the mirror and own up to what you really are and what you've really done—that is not easy. Most people can't do that shit, man. That's true courage. You can face yourself and be like, "I am full of shit." Oh my God, how do I even get away with believing myself for five minutes? You know, and I had to go through that whole thing with myself, you know, like, Charles, you uh, just are nothing but one complex set of lies that you've told yourself about everything. And it didn't help that I grew up in a family environment and a system where I was told nothing but lies, too. I did not find out until I was 45 years old that, Michael, try to wrap your head around this. Okay. On some level, if I was a responsible author... I would have to publish an, a retraction now of at least one-third of Exile Nation, the biographical section that talks about my family history. Because my mother was a primary source of a lot of my family history. She loved to tell stories and considered her and my grandfather considered themselves the chroniclers of the family tree and the keepers of the family story. And at 45, after my grandfather had died... Two things happened. One, okay, so to expand the picture really quick, just so people understand, how my mother got borderline personality disorder was because she was a severely abused child that grew up in an incredibly awful home. And it was my grandfather who was that way to her. And my mother used to tell these epic Dickensian tales of the woe that she used to suffer as a poor abused child in that home. And that was her justification for everything that she did these days. We could never figure out why. My mom seemed like this perfect person because she never made any mistakes because she got the shit beat out of her if she did. So what was the problem with her? Like, why did she incur so much wrath? Why were you so abused? And the only real answer was that my grandfather was psychotic and he just got off on it. But I knew my grandpa. I, he, he was a dick, but he definitely wasn't psychotic. May have been a narcissist. Kind of ran in the family, especially with Italians. Oh, my God. But, uh, you know... There was never any explanation. We just couldn't fucking figure it out. And then, like, my mom, my mom had a series of three really bad strokes in 2015 and early 2016. She's not the same woman she used to be. She's, she's got dementia. She's got all kinds of shit. She's, her cognitive ability is, is evaporating. And um, just before she had the stroke, right after my grandfather died, she was in deep grieving over my sister's suicide and she was getting real spotty and kind of weird. And at one point we were driving in the car, I went down to visit her to film her for the at home in the dark documentary. And, um, she starts talking to me. She goes, Oh my God, you're never going to believe what I found out. What'd you find out, mom? She says, well, uh, I get a call from your brother and my sister and from your uncle and my brother and you know, your aunt and they're all complaining to me. Why doesn't pa have his headstone? Why doesn't Pa have his headstone? So I go to the cemetery and I say, hey, why doesn't my father have his headstone? And they say, oh, your father's a veteran. His headstone is handled by the Veterans Administration. So I go to the VA and they're like, Sam, who? So we have to pull all of your grandfather's records, get all new records to prove that he's a veteran so he can get the headstone. And so I get all the re records and I'm looking at them at home and I'm going through them one at a time and I notice something. So, okay, what'd you notice? 
Well, according to the records, the official records, your grandfather deployed to Europe on this date, returned home on this date, and I was born on this date. And I said, yeah. And she says, six months late. I said, what are you saying? She says, it doesn't look like Salvatore was my father. And suddenly everything made sense. Why was my mother and my grandmother singled out for such awful abuse throughout this life to turn my mother into this crazy woman that she was? Because she was not my grandfather's child, and yet he raised her as her own, and he resented and hated her his whole life because of it, and my mother ended up taking care of him till the day he dropped, even though she hated him, because she knew that he, he could have just tossed her out in the cold. But she didn't know this. She was so programmed. She was so abused that she just out of fear and loyalty took care of him. And only after he died did she find out exactly why. And in talking to my mother about this, this opened the floodgates. And suddenly all of the myths, all of the foundational narratives of my family turned out to be my mother's inventions. Now, this is stuff I believed as my life story. I put it in my biography for fuck's sake. Did I ever think to check secondary and tertiary sources on family lore? No. I trusted my mother. But it turns out that almost everything she told me was false. And then I realized that this is all because she's mentally ill. And she has this complex, this borderline syndrome. And part of what they do is craft universes and mythologies and stories that justify and explain who they are. And the parts of their lives that don't fit what they want to be or how they want to be perceived, they alter. I always thought my mother's story was a little too Dickensian, and and in some ways it turned out to be just that. But in other ways, God, she's such a drama queen and could never let it go. And I always just wondered, like, what was the deal? Now I understand. So, you know, now I'm faced with like, okay, well, I published all this stuff. I thought I was this person. Guess what? I'm in my mid-40s now, and I don't even know who I am. What this means is my father was adopted, his father was adopted. That means that my biological father is not of my family lineage, nor is my so-called biological grandfather, even though he is not the father of my father. Okay, so there's two adoptions in two generations there. So I don't know anything about my real biological family on my father's side and my mother's father is a mystery, ergo, my mother's family is a total mystery to me as well. I know a little bit about the adopted or families that we all grew up around, but they're not my biological families. Now, how fucked up is that? Like, when you're faced with something like that, and if you're one of these overthinking assholes like me, what you do is you realize, wow, this is a metaphor, man. None of us know, have any idea who we really are. There's this line in JFK where the guy is playing Bill Broussard, who's one of the assistant DAs to Garrison. He says, like, uh, this is New Orleans, chief. How the hell do you know who your daddy is? Just because your mama told you so? <laughs> and it's so true, man. It's so true that we're going through that. We don't know shit about who we are. And we've spent our lives being fed this lie that tells us, go craft who you are. Be whoever you want to be. That was a big trade-off. For women, they, they were mobilizing in the biggest feminist movement you can imagine in the 70s, dude. Bitches were not taking it. And they mobilized behind the Equal Rights Amendment, an amendment to the Constitution, which would have given women equal rights as men. 
And at some point, this chick Gloria Steinem shows up, and nobody knows at the time that she's a CIA agent, and she used to infiltrate student groups, and she infiltrates the women's movement, becomes the face of the women's movement. Her whole thing is, hey, girls, you don't want political equality. What you really want, true equality, is economic equality. And so you don't want to have waste all your time trying to get an amendment passed. What you want is to get out of your house, go into the workforce, get yourself a job, get yourself your own paycheck, and get yourself your own shit. And everybody said, wow, that sounds great. That was what the whole 80s was about. All this political change was refunneled into economic change. Shoulder pads. Shoulder pads, man. So women had to become men for a while and go into the workforce. My mom was one of them. She was a woman who never got beyond high school and became a self-made woman who became an extremely successful and influential philanthropic executive that ran some of the biggest charitable foundations you've ever heard of. I mean, just she had that unique opportunity. At that time, she heard the call and entered the workforce, and she was able to find a way with that borderline personality to serve her betters, as I put it, and work amongst the rich because she loved them. She loved the rich. My God, they were everything to her. And so she spent her life catering to them, getting their money and turning them into good causes. But she was a very sick woman, and, you know, she was the head of of Florida's largest chain of rehab and mental health centers called the David Lawrence Center. There's like 26 locations or some shit across the state. And there's no, like, state infrastructure there. So if you got to go to a detox or something, you go to the David Lawrence Center. So my mom ran the foundation arm that raised all the money that ran all of it. She put my sister through that program of theirs, that residential program of theirs, six times. Never once did my mother ever question, like, oh, do you think it could be something at home, maybe, that's causing the problem? You think yeah, maybe I should just back off and let her find her own way? So you could never reach a person like that, you know? And all of this is wrapped into these lessons of like, how do we, you know, what is healing really all about? And well, Jesus, so much of it is realizing the shit you can't control and how this idea of like the wounded healer or the, or the Messiah or somebody who thinks that they have the ability to heal someone else is actually very dangerous. And they can really twist people's heads around. We're going to drain the swamp. Because if they are not... We're going to drain the swamp, man. It's like if they're not clear on who and what they are, man, they are going to really mess someone's head up. And I guess I had to kind of go through that on some levels and experience it and run into so many people that were like that. I mean, in my line of work now, dude, with plant medicine and addiction and trauma, you got everybody and their grandmother calling themselves Johnny the Healer, Denise the Healer, like styling themselves as these specialists like i'm sorry but as far as i'm concerned like me and the two guys i work with and like maybe six other people in the profession might be able to call themselves like specialists or experts on this shit and we all got it through life experience not because we have a medical degree or because we decided to adopt this as part of our portfolio or shit like this we live this stuff day in and day out my life right now is people that are dying and are trying to survive and I talk to them all day long, and I talk them through their shit and try to get them into our program. And if not, I try to get them hooked up with somebody else. You know, and that's that's real, man. That shit's life. You know, you go make pretty fucking pictures, festival stuff, all of this. You can go to Silicon Valley and write the most killer app known to man. That doesn't impress me. You want to impress me, man? Show me how to stop someone from suffering or from killing themselves. That's balls, you know? 
Well, dude, so. this has been a four-hour show. <laughs> this is our first. Wow. Balls. <laughs> Speaking of balls, it'll take some I balls to, <laughs> to put this out. I think we'll probably split it into three episodes and then, like, still have some left over. But, man, I... Uh. All that having been said, I still feel like there's there's just a huge amount of material and stories <laughs> and shit that we haven't even touched. And, you know, I'm really glad to have had you on the show. And I think there will be time for more in large part specifically because of your role as a gadfly and counterpoint or scapegoat in this situation. And, you know, the way that you hold what, you know, you might call like the Hayoka on some level, you know, this, <laughs> or like, like big minds, uh, the voice dialogue therapy where you untie the bouquet and examine all of these different sub personalities. And one of those sub personalities is the damaged self, the sense that we, that a part of us is damaged permanently, but that's the Christic part. That's the wound through which we are able to recognize our wholeness. And I think and find that same, yeah, and I think that same thing applies in the society at large that, you know, it's only by going into the wound that we have any luck. And so that means working with people for whom the wound is the figure, you know, for whom it is the story rather than the part that we have edited out of the story. And, yeah. and so for that, I acknowledge you as a vital contribution to the archives of this show. I, yeah, you you can call me like a societal pimple, you know, in some ways. <laughs> like everybody wants to pop one and they're fascinated by it. They'll watch videos about it, but nobody wants to admit it. <laughs> and nobody nobody wants one on their face. I am not surprised by the whole pimple popping epidemic and how people are just fascinated by it, dude. It's such a weird, like primal thing, but we'll talk about that next time. <laughs> Sometime, yeah. <laughs> so where do you want to send people? who want to get to know you and your work better. Oh, well, shit, man. Um, they want to read my book. They can find it on Amazon, obviously. Exile Nation. Um, the Plastic People is on every digital platform now, except Netflix. My contract expired with them, and it's pretty much outdated at this point, but it's still a good film. All my short films and all my other At Home in the Dark and Soldiers of the Vine are on my YouTube and uh, Vimeo accounts. So just look Google Charles Shaw Nomad Cinema. And, um, yeah, just a simple Google search will pull up all my journalism and, you know, everything I've written for 15, 20 years. So, yeah, I mean, I'm easy to find, you know. Well, dude, on that note, That's my cool. evening guests are here. I got a bounce. Okay. But, man, such a pleasure. I'm glad to hear that you've been doing the good work. And I encourage you to, <laughs> I encourage Put you that to in keep quotes, it up. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the good work. If you were a wizard, we made it from Charles the Black to Charles the Gray. We're getting, we're getting closer. <laughs> Dude, I'm glad this is audio, because if it was video, you'd see I really am Charles the Gray. It's kind of funny. Um, thanks, Michael. This this is a great experience. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Have a good one. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs, I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. 
So stick around and have a most excellent eon. 